Good morning and welcome back to the Eye of Faces. Welcome to part 7 of Scraps and Scrolls for Dance with Dragons. And it's a whole new era of the book, so very exciting. I'll come back to that in a moment. For now, welcome. Great to have you back. Great to have you here. I am Sir Buckley, your top green guy. Here on the Isle of Faces, I'll be taking you through today's chapters as always. And I am coming to you from, hey, it's actually sunny England. Bloody cold, mind you, first thing in the morning, straight at dawn but nice and sunny today, so the energy must be up, it has to be, that's the law. Before we get going today, as always, a big thank you to everyone for, firstly, listening to me, but secondly, sharing and downloading and all those things, and just being nice in general. It's a tough old world out there still, I am certainly feeling the lockdown effects of late, I miss my basketball very much, so hopefully the podcast is helping you in some way, that's really what's keeping me going at the moment, because I'm finding it tough, so if I can be a help to you, maybe that will be a help to me. Let's also have a big, big thank you, a huge, humongous thank you to all our wonderful patrons. And again, obviously, I want to specify our own Aegon VI, our Lord Commander, Namian Darklin, our KM, and again, a special, special thank you to Archmaester June, healer of the Lesser Poxes for all the hard work she and her colleagues are doing and to everyone out there on the front lines trying to save everybody because, well, we owe you a lot of thanks and a podcast is a poor way to do it, but it's the way we're going for now. Hopefully bigger rewards are in the pipeline. There's not too much to go through before we get going today, only an update on what's happening with the Guess the Airtime competition. You know the rules, I give you what chapters we've got each week just before the episode comes out, and you guess which one is received the most airtime. And we have two new people on the leaderboard this week, because they both guessed correctly for Tyrion 6 last week. Yes, to be fair, I think that one was going to be a clear winner the whole way. It might have been the longest chapter we've had in dance so far. In terms of airtime, I'd have to look. But our winners were our own at Vidakasini and at Lola Links. They both guessed correctly, so welcome to our leaderboard. I believe you are now all tied on one point each with Joggy98 from the week before, they are all one point below at Elendor F. I believe the winning mark is still two. It might be three, I'll have to check. But that's how our leaderboard looks. Don't forget to get involved next time. And with that, fellow green folk, I think we can actually look towards what we're doing today. Because it's a bit of a change, it's a bit of a mix-up. This time, instead of our usual four, we have three chapters for you today. Now, does that mean this episode is going to be any shorter? Eh, I doubt it. You've seen the episodes, they're getting longer and longer somehow. We're always just about under three hours. I wouldn't be surprised if this one is no change. Why three chapters though? Well, as Aziz has explained over on Valoridus, it's because we've got these two gigantic chapters next to each other in Asher and Tyrion. So Aziz and the Share made a probably quite smart decision to split those. We'll have Asher this week, Tyrion next week, so we've only got the three chapters for you. Which now brings me on to what I hinted at earlier, that this is a brand new era in A Dance with Dragons. It's really, I think, kind of the second act. Now you know what I'm like, I get a bit obsessed with the structuring and how George and different places the POVs go, etc, etc. So bear in mind because you're going to get a little bit of that. Well firstly, actually, let's start with something more simple. This is Essos Week. We have one lone chapter in Westeros. And okay, sure, there's only three to begin with, but still, that's pretty impressive. Funnily enough, that did actually happen on our very first episode of The Dance of Dragons, which was also three chapters, the prologue, then Tyrion and Daenerys, so that was two Essos ones. But I'm not sure that's going to happen again, just looking forward here in the chapters. It may do, there's a possibility, it depends how things will work out, but definitely, it's pretty rare. And actually, as I look at it now, if you look at last week's episode and next week's episode, we actually have six out of seven chapters all in Essos. That goes from Tyrion 6 all the way up to John 6, with only one Westerosi chapter in there, so that is very, very different. But actually, another very, very big difference, there's no Triforce this week. We don't have a John, we don't have a Daenerys, 
we don't have a Tyrion. And that definitely hasn't happened so far. We've always had at least one of them, normally two, quite often all three. And again, looking ahead here, how I think things are going to turn out, we'll only have that one more time, possibly around chapter 59. So quite a while away, that's pretty much the end of the book. So as you can see, that is a complete rarity. Very, very strange for those three massive pillars of A Dance of Dragons to not be present. Even though we're still going to be talking about them a fair bit. Make sure you cherish that. But that's all really just about how this particular episode is different. What am I talking about in terms of a different era, a new part of A Dance of Dragons, a new section? Well, not only are we going to hit on all the title chapters coming out to play, as we've discussed in previous episodes, there's several other things, but let's look at that one first. So far, we've had just one, all the way up to this point, in The Merchant's Man slash Quentin 1. And no, Reek does not count like I explained in the prepper episode. But now we have three in a row, which will lead into an even bigger explosion later on when we reach the final third of the book. Then they're all coming out to play. On top of that, what we're symbolising today is the opening up of the plot by adding more POVs. We have two first chapters today, and it's been 12 chapters since we last had a first chapter, if you're sticking with me, in week one. Today, we have John Connington and Asher joining the squad, and Melisandre isn't too far away either. She's going to be the week after next. Then Fionn's going to up his frequency before we get to the point where all the feast people are catching up and opening their own arts. So you can see we're at, this is much wider scope now than the first part of everything we've dealt with so far. Danny, John, and Tyrion, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> they're still going to be very much the main focus, but the scope is widening. To put it into context, let's give you some numbers. 15 of the first 22 chapters of Dance were owned by that trio alone, with Bran, Davos, Fionn, and Quentin sharing the other seven chapters. So basically two-thirds to those three that Triforce. But for the next 22, they will only own 10 of those 22 chapters, with the remainder now being shared between John Connington, Quentin, Asher, Fionn, Davos and Bran who wave their goodbyes, Melisandre, Arya Hotar, and Aya, with Jaime only a couple of chapters away from joining that group as well. So you can see that we've just reached a whole new level of cast of characters and scopes and arcs and everything like that. But it's not just a numbers game, it's a content game. The chapters we actually have today are about opening up new storylines. And John Con and Quentin's chapter is about getting a better view, a wider view of what's going to happen around Marine and Essos. Obviously, John Con's going the other way, but he's still saying up what's going on right now. Quentin gives us so, so much information on what's coming from Marine and the Battle of Fire. We get loads of that set, loads of names, we get all these different sellsword companies, who's going where, who's aligned with who, what the situation is, and pretty much the same with our final chapter with Asher. That's the opening of Stannis' campaign in the North, and that's obviously going to be a very, very important plot point going forward. So hopefully you can see what I mean, just that we've, we've reached a new section, basically. The wars are on, the dance is going, the music's playing, very, very exciting. Let me zone in here. Hopefully you're joining me in getting amped up about this new section. You can tell I'm pretty passionate about it. But let's focus in. We have three chapters to deal with. As I said, they are John Connington slash The Lost Lord, then Quentin 2 slash The Windblown, finishing with Asher 1, The Wayward Bride, one of my favourite chapters. That is very, very good. So let me stop talking about the overall. Let's get going, shall we, with John Connington 1 slash The Lost Lord. So yes, like I said, new POV time for the book and for the series as a whole. It's been quite a while since we've had that. 12 chapters since Fionn 1, but we already knew Fionn. It's been 18 chapters since The Merchant's Man and our introduction to Quentin, also a brand new character. And there's some similarities between these two, as they're the only two POVs from this book that we didn't know beforehand. 
You have to cast your mind all the way back to the prepper episode where we went through all of this. But while we gain Barristan Selmy and Melisandre as POVs in this book that we didn't have before, we were familiar with them beforehand. They'd been involved throughout the saga. But for Quentin and Jonkon, we've heard their names, but they've never been anywhere near our actual story. And Jonkon wasn't even supposed to be alive. So this is a big step out into the unknown today. In many ways, it's the biggest step that George has taken yet with a POV character probably since Davos and the opening of that viewpoint, because we didn't see that one coming either. Prior to Dance, we knew nothing of John Compton really, or his surroundings or this specific situation, which has only been remedied very lately, thanks to Tyrion. And we likely still didn't think we'd be getting a POV out of it, if we had read all those first six Tyrion chapters up to this point and said, okay, who do you think is joining from this cast as a POV? Most people probably would have guessed that young Griff, Aegon, or would have hoped for that anyway. But no, we get the older Griff, we get John Connington. The inclusion of this chapter is a signal of something else on top of what we've already mentioned, the minimal arc. We thought Bran was short with three, but John Con wants to top that with a measly two. And now that he breaks the mould, everyone's going to start copying. So far in this book, we've had the aforementioned Bran, Davos and Quentin only get four each, but then Theon has seven, and we all know about the big three. So they basically all have fleshed out arcs as we're used to with the other books. But here comes John Connington to change the dynamic. And again, I did mention this a bit in the prepper episode, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating, but it's very interesting to me. He opens the floodgates for the Melisandres and the Ayers and the Jamies and the Arios and the Circes of the world. Now, this isn't completely new for us. We experienced similar with Ariane and Victarion, etc. in Feast. But again, it's that new section of dance. We haven't had these two chapter POVs so far. And it's always just a little strange for us to get our heads around that, given around how many chapters POVs had early on in the first three books. And an extra note for you here, an extra difference to separate us from Feast a bit. In that book, of all the two chapter POVs, the biggest chapter gap between that first and second chapter, for any of them, was 19 chapters between the Queenmaker and the Princess in the Tower, slash Ariane 1 and 2. You might remember at the time that I spoke about how gigantic that gap felt, and I was really surprised to actually look at it and see it's only 19 chapters. Feels like it's a whole book apart. Well, John Connington again blows that out of the water. Between his first and second POV appearance, we have a stunning 37 chapters. That's huge. By the time we see him again in The Griffin Reborn, we're basically going to be at the end of the book, or very close to it at least. So this is a different experience, even if we have gotten used to two chapter arcs a bit. We've never had to keep them in mind for so long of a time. And it isn't like Jon Con is crossing over with anyone else to steal appearances in someone else's chapter. Tyrion's gone, he's not going to be able to do that for you, unfortunately. We see nothing of him or his cast of characters for the next 37 chapters. And that is the equivalent of three quarters of A Feast for Crows, if you're wondering if you want to put that into context. But I've gone on enough about patterning and structuring, haven't I? Let's talk about who we're actually dealing with here. Well, let me firstly say, lucky you, dear listener. As the fates would have it, not this Saturday just gone, but the one before, famous YouTuber Joe Magician had famous American Brendan Beefish on his YouTube channel to discuss this very character. So, if you're looking for way, way better character analysis than I can provide, I'd advise you to go ahead and watch that video on Joe Magician's channel, and I'll include the link in the description, of course. Obviously, they aren't focusing specifically here on the Lost Lord chapter, but given that it makes up a pretty big chunk of everything we get of John Con, I feel pretty secure in saying that this chapter will get some discussion. And as I say, you couldn't ask for two better people to explore the man as a whole. Now, I haven't watched or listened to that yet, because the last thing I want to do is absorb all of their information and takes and then see it trickle into my own notes here. That's not fair at all. So I've waited until this chapter is complete, and then you can be sure... As soon as I'm done recording, I'll be hopping across to watch myself. And like I say, check the description for a link to that video. Although I'm pretty sure 
which you would have seen it anyway, because we all love Joe Magician's videos. So what is my take on this John Connington, this, this Griffin, of which we know very little about from the story so far? Well, let's consider where we are in the story and consider the overall, seeing as we're all rereaders here. And I'm going to do a bit of a streamlined version because we did discuss this back in the prep episode, of course. And again, I know it's a while back now, but I don't want to just repeat stuff back at you. One of the most exciting things about John Connington joining is that he is a man from another era. In Storm, I made a big fuss about how big of a revelation it was gaining Jamie as a POV because he was actually there in the court of the Mad King. He was actually present for all these major, major moments in Westerosi history and the history of the Crown, the history of the Rebellion, and how the world as we know it came to be. Before Jamie came along, we really only had Ned as a POV from that time, and he did his very best to avoid recalling any of it and clearly never had the actual access to court that Jamie did. So now we finally have another, someone who was very much involved in the war and in the Targaryens. In fact, if you ask him, we'll never find anyone as close to that royal family as John Connington when he declares himself Rhaegar's bestie. Ironically, we're going to get someone else to later fill this role when we're given access to Barristan Selmy, but still, gaining the viewpoint of anyone with clear and specific memories of that time and that atmosphere, of which so much of our current saga is based, is always very exciting to me. John Con does sort of scream unreliable narrator when remembering the past, and certainly has one of the biggest biases when we're talking about Rhaegar, but still, very very interesting. And on the same note, he's probably our best ever window into the schemes of Varys and Illyro, at least in terms of POVs. No one truly knows the mind of these two plotters, but it seems that Jon Con is the highest they've ever let an outsider come into their plans, or at least is the one they've had a working relationship with for the longest, so far as we know. So we'll see if that pays off eventually. So we've got excitement from the past and from the present, as George plays a superb timing trick. Just two chapters ago, Tyrion was stolen away from the Shy Maid and Jon Connington and the Young Griff storyline, so shortly after dropping one of the biggest bombs in the entire series with the news that Young Griff was a supposed Targaryen and he expanded on that with news that he meant to take the Iron Throne, obviously throwing us into a whirl about the immeasurable possibilities not just to Westeros but more importantly to Daenerys and her own prospects. So the first time I could be very very worried about Tyrion's abduction not letting us see how that plan is going to go, hence George drops Jon Connington right here. Because honestly, when could we be more excited to see what comes of Tyrion's persuasive Savas game, and also learn more secrets of the past? On the latter point, Jon Con isn't going to give us too much here, but for the former, we get a huge, major development that makes the chapter more than worth it. But hold on, hold your horses, we still aren't on the actual chapter yet. Let me give you the briefest of takes on the man himself, which I'm aware I did just say a moment ago, and yeah, probably not all that brief, but I'm going with it anyway, and again... I am doing my best to avoid being repetitive. John Connington, to me, is this strange mix of the tragic slash empathetic character and the selfish, incredibly dangerous, volatile character who either doesn't realise or doesn't care how much of his own actions are going to affect the wider world. The tragedy or empathy comes from multiple angles, the largest of which is probably the idea that he could be doing all of this that we see him do based on a lie. We are going to see how much this mission all means to him because of Rhaegar. That's very much focused on in this chapter. There are other factors at play though. The restoration of his own honour, being able to go home and being able to prove himself worthy. He's likely fond of young Griff as his own person right now and he was a Targaryen supporter from the beginning. But we all know his passion in this project. The reason he signed up is because of Rhaegar. He believes he is doing all of this, this hard, world-changing mission in aid of the man who was at the least his best friend and more than likely someone he was in love with. He believes he is helping Rhaegar's son. So the mere idea that that fact could be false and everything he's dedicated the second half of his life to is a lie... Well, that is indeed tragic to me. And I can never quite decide if the true tragedy would be if he ever found out that truth or if he never did. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. The other side of the sympathy some might feel for the character is a bit more traditional for other stories. He is dying. Sorry to give you the spoiler, it doesn't come up to the end of the chapter, but we as we readers know it. 
so that's more traditional in general, but quite unique for A Song of Ice and Fire. While we've had POVs die in the past, and we've definitely had POVs live in constant danger, and we've even had foreshadowing that shows them on theoretical roads to death, like a Ned or a Catelyn, we've never had one that knows they are going to die, at least fairly soonish. We've never had that kind of time element, this present, this in your face. And beyond being sympathetic of someone knowing they only have so long left to live, which obviously we can all relate to, this can inspire a bit more empathy to John Connor's motivations. While he is doing this largely for his own emotional benefit, he's not doing it so he can sit next to the Iron Throne eating and drinking and growing rich far into his twilight years. He is generally doing this for what can come after his own death. And thirdly, in a vacuum, we can relate to this being a man who lost everything he once loved. And the name of the chapter doesn't just relate to geographic location. This is a man who lost his home, his country, his cause, his wealth, his status and his honour. Even in this chapter we'll see how he had to give up even more of his honour and reputation after exile just to put this plan into place. And on top of that, he lost his love in Rhaegar. He wasn't even given the chance to go and fight for him, or go and die for him. Now we know a lot of that is due to his own choices and who's deciding to back. But then again, we should remember it was Rhaegar that John Connington backed, not Ares, not truly. And he wound up in this situation actually because of his refusal to be evil in some sense of the word, which will have very unfortunate circumstances later on, we're guessing. So nothing is ever clear cut, but it is easy to feel the weight this guy's had to bear for so long. I don't think any of us are envious of his circumstances. I've just realised how bad that word sounds when you say it out loud, but uh, there you go. But what do we now see as the result of those choices and circumstances, here and in the future? What is it John Connington is actually going to do in our present series instead of the past? In all likelihood, nothing good. In his second chapter, much, much later on, we'll see the beginnings of his campaign for recaptured glory and young Griff on the Iron Throne. And that's a really great chapter with a lot of promise, and that's where we're really going to have to ask questions about what is it he's going to do, how he's going to approach this war of his ruthlessness type thing. But it's still here in this chapter that we get the first seeds being planted of John Con being so obsessed with Rhaegar and his son and this plan that he will do anything to succeed. Combine that with his thoughts about why he failed before, his constant thinking on the crimes of Tywin Lannister, and as we've discussed actually many times already, it all points towards something very, very bad happening at his command. I won't waste your time postulating on what exactly that could be, as I'm sure that's been covered in other places, but the mere knowledge of something happening over in Westeros, which has already suffered so much, is enough to really worry us, because this is George, and we know what he's capable of. And on top of that, he's just advocating for all-out war, he's a warmonger. He wants to go back to his tattered country and bring more fighting and death. Now, if we're being fair, we can't play double standards here because Danny also thinks the same thing pretty regularly and I don't come down on her for it, so again, I've got to be fair, but there's just a little bit of difference in motivation. John Connington has played a large part in the formation of the perfect prince in Young Griff, and maybe he really buys into what Varys is selling in that regard, but you get the sense that he'd be doing this no matter what kind of person Young Griff was, purely because he knows who Rhaegar was. In a lot of ways, Varys and Illyrio are the luckiest sons of bitches in this entire saga. There is no one better than John Connington and his exact circumstances to manipulate into the role that they've put him in. So we don't know the details. We've got hints and theories, like I say, but overall, we just know John Connington is forcing his way into the conversation of Westeros and is going to upend everything there, largely for his own personal reasons. And again, where this might hit his hardest is in terms of Daenerys. We know and will discover the value that John Con places on dragons, but for Daenerys as a person, eh, not so much. This is going to derail in some way all she hopes for and all we hope for her, if not outright usurp it. So we can feel bad for John Con and his past, we can understand it, but ultimately he has to be viewed as a dangerous problem, as interesting as this story is. So I should probably get on with actually relating that story to you instead of just talking about the man himself. But if you do want more of that talk, you can always rewind back to the prep episode 
Or as I said before, you could just go and check out Joe Magician's video with Brenda Vfish. And we'll definitely get more character examination anyway as we move through this chapter. So I can't even do what we normally do with a new POV and look forward through their arc because we've only got one more chapter after this far in the future. But it is clearly a very different chapter, a very important one. And we require a lot of stuff to happen here in The Lost Lord to make it a reality. Last week I went on and on about what a major moment Tyrion 6 was in terms of influence and being a major turning point for the plot. And that's true, but it doesn't go anywhere without what happens here in The Lost Lord. These two chapters really have to work in conjunction with each other to get that huge needle swing in the fate of A Song of Ice and Fire. So we had best treat this one as the monumentally important chapter that it is, I think. Let's give it some respect. We open with John Connington again pacing the deck of the Shy Maid and second-guessing himself. What we'll see as we continue here is that John Con is a stressed out dude. He's a man never completely confident in what he's doing, likely because of what's happened to him in his past, and therefore constantly does this second guessing thing. Part of that, I think, is a profound loneliness. In his younger years, he was surrounded by peers, either at home in Griffin's Roost or at court, and he obviously became very attached to Rhaegar. Since the rebellion, he's essentially been on his own, wandering around and sealed off from true connection by his very specific circumstances and experiences. Being given the mission of young Griff and this mini family here on the Shy Maid likely dealt with some of that feeling, but not all of it. John Connington is still lonely on this boat because he's still the leader, he's still the one in the know. He alone has all the secrets and all the plans, he hoards them to himself. He alone has to keep the others at bay because in the end, they are merely tools to accomplish a task with. He might have to jettison or betray them at a moment's notice for what he believes to be the greater good, so he can't really truly connect with anyone, not even young Griff. Of course, he has to be kept in cotton wool and drip-fed information. It seems that Halden Halfmaster is the one that he confides in the most, but that's mainly due to the necessity, not to any personal feelings. John Connington can't share any of his burdens, he has to take it all upon himself. I'm sure many of us can relate to how lonely stress and that kind of thing and responsibility can make you. And again, like we've said thousand times already before, this mission is everything to him. It's 100%. He's as into this as Rob was to the War of the Five Kings or Stannis is to the North currently. So taking that amount of pressure and not spreading it out takes its toll and keeps him pacing. Outwardly, he'll maintain a show of confidence in what he's doing, even when some surprises come later. But we shall see how difficult this is for him and the amount of balls he has to juggle at once. Not so different from his namesake up on the wall. First time readers, upon discovering that we are in the mind of Griff, and definitely after reading the first sentence, could have been tricked into thinking we're about to see a Tyrion rescue mission so that the shy maid part of the story can live on. But that is put to bed pretty quickly as you realise that Jon is thinking about the loss of Tyrion in the past tense, and he does the same for Sir Horus. So this is clear, this is later on, they've moved away. And that can be a bit of a crestful moment because we like the shy maid chapter so far. Tyrion seemed to have found a nice little happy space in the world finally, even if the end of Tyrion 6 would suggest otherwise. And we want to uncover all those secrets that he just showed us. Even if we now have John Connington, we might have hoped this little family would have cared enough about Tyrion to try and save him. But alas, no. Dragging Tyrion out of the Roin was one thing, the much more costly thing, it'll turn out. But delaying the mission further after the news that Howden uncovered in Selhoris, that's unthinkable. No chance we're doing that. And John Con didn't like Tyrion to begin with, but you can see how it supports what we said earlier about being willing to cut any of these people loose if it keeps Young Griff safe and the mission rolling. So now we need a new tension to replace the possibility of Tyrion returning. And how about this? Where is Howden? Could he be next on the list of this seemingly breaking fellowship? To distract from that, John Con expands on what the new situation is. The Shy Maid has continued her voyage south into the much hotter part of the continent that we're normally more used to, thanks to Daenerys, and is moored up at Voluntheris, yet another river city. This one is similar to Selhoris that we recently visited, in it being larger than the biggest cities of Westeros, and yet only considered a small town here. And it also essentially belongs to Volantis now. 
Although it's worth noting, this city was actually one of the Valerians' own that they built themselves. So that history we keep dipping into of the Second Spice War and Garen, etc., where Volum Ferris was actually on the other side to what we're used to. Although it has experienced flooding several times thanks to water wizards. And you know we always want to find out more about those. Water wizards, sounds cool. And it also has a little bit of a fine blood connection. You might remember Lysoro Rogar, brother to Lara, who married Prince Viserys before he became King Viserys. Well, when the Rogar bank failed and Lysoro had to flee Lys, it was here at Volum Ferris that he was captured and taken back to eventually face death. So, a nice little side note there. But much more interesting to us is the present, which finds the Golden Company encamped just three miles south of their current position. So this is obviously a major move forward in the plot. Thanks to Tyrion and Illyro, we know a whole section of the mission has just been completed. The point of this voyage? Well, meet Daenerys, that's true, but also meet the Golden Company. So whatever the fate of Tyrion and Halden, we know that something is going to change in the circumstances here. And Tyrion's words to young Griff over the Savas table, which Jonkon obviously knows nothing about, are ringing loud in the reader's ears all the way through this chapter. But there were other problems as well. Halden has obviously relayed the found information of Self Horus back, Daenerys is still marine with no sign of coming any closer. And on top of that, Volantis has come north under Triarch Malacro with a force of his own to cut the Golden Company off from going to her. And, oh yeah, Tyrion is gone as well, but no one here really cares about that. And the fact that Jon Con is lumping hated Tyrion in with Daenerys might hint at what we said earlier pertaining to the value that he assigns her. Jon Con needs to vent out some of his frustrations, and unfortunately, the Moor is the only one in his vicinity. So he starts complaining to her about having to wait. The Moor, no longer having to be coy around Tyrion, actually asks him about the tactic of taking Young Griff along to the Golden Company, and speaks against it. So already, we have our interest in this chapter raised, as we know we're not only going to go and meet the Golden Company we've been hearing about for a book and a half, but Young Griff is going to be publicly unmasked for the first time. Again, big big steps here. The Moor, perhaps convincing us of what we wondered earlier about her own investment in the boy, says, we've waited this long, let's wait a bit longer. Now is this because she believes it the best tactical decision, or because she knows as soon as that mask comes off, she's going to largely lose young Griff the boy as the world gains A on the sixth Targaryen, and she's not going to be able to get most of that back. Is it just a protective nature? She doesn't want this unmasking because he's going to become that more at risk? Well, why not a mix of all, I say. But Jonkon says, safer, yes. Wiser, no. He is a man grown, and this is the road that he was born to walk. Griff had no patience for this quibbling. He was sick of hiding, sick of waiting, sick of caution. I do not have time enough for caution. So if we look at the end of that quote, George is sliding in some sneaky hints here in the incredibly clever way that he does. Rereaders will know exactly what John Con means about having a limited time thanks to the reveal that we get at the end of the chapter. But George hides it in a paragraph where it logically makes sense amongst what else he says. The man is impatient, he wants to get going, he wants to get on with paying this big debt, restoring his honour, doing right by his old friend and love, etc, etc. John Connington must have thanked the stars once Varys and Illyro convinced him of what was possible with their plan, then he would have had the caveat of how long it would actually take. Imagine being told all of your heart's desires are possible, you can right all the wrongs in your life, but you have to wait years, decades for them to come to fruition. And we don't know exactly at what point in time John Con was bought in on the deal anyway, but we can assume it was quite a while ago. And on top of that, We've already had Tyrion describe to us how Westeros is ripe for the taking and logically can only remain such for so long. So Jonkon is likely equally aware of that particular time limit on top of all the others. But he also has political reasons for wanting to unmask Young Griff at this juncture beyond the getting on of it vibe. He relates to them all that if the Golden Company have already decided to move against them, they're already screwed. Doesn't matter. They are past the stage where the Shy Maid provides ample protection. But more importantly, the legend of the boy has to begin somewhere. John Connington is, in many ways, a realist. He knows that Westeros is not going to fall to its knees just because someone turns up on the beach with a dragon banner. He needs a following. He needs prestige. 
Wes Joss needs to see he already has people that have bought into him so they can get on board with doing the same thing a little bit more quickly. But he also needs physical swords behind him to take Westeros in the first place. So what can bind them to young Griff beyond being bought and paid for, as more refers to them here? It's the belief in something bigger, the uniting of their own heart's desires, the history of the Golden Company, and what young Griff is supposed to be in an actual Targaryen. Illyro related as much to us in an earlier Tyrion chapter, and now we see that Jon Con preaches the same thing. We've created the perfect prince, but that doesn't matter for Toffee, unless he has men who will follow him for that reason. And it's a pretty big ask they're about to lay in front of the Golden Company. Again, John is a realist. He knows it will come down to what they can all personally gain, but to do something of this magnitude, you also need more than the promise of a paycheck. You need true motivation. And for all we know, maybe the insecurities that Tyrion planted in young Griff's mind are already playing in Jon Con's. If he is still under the assumption that they'll be joining up with Daenerys at some point, then he likely does want something to prop up young Griff's prestige so that he doesn't get completely overshadowed. Still, the more keeps up her argument, and Jon has to admit that she is right on some counts. This Golden Company is generations beyond those who would have readily bought into the dream of return and glory, or even what it meant to fight under a dragon banner. And again, we must be reminded that it was the other dragon banner that created this company in the first place, but everyone is sort of hoping we can all just forget about that to a certain extent just to get on with things. Not only that, but times have changed. 12 years have gone by, so I suppose we do get a bit of a hint timeline-wise about his involvement with Varys and Nilio. So we cannot hope to know the ins and outs of the company and how it works or where the leadership might lean, especially as we start getting some details about their inner workings. Miles Toyn, known as Blackheart, which is another cool nickname, has gone. He was the leader back in the day. Someone called Harry Strickland is now in his place. We don't know anything about Harry or his leadership style yet, but the nickname Homeless sure isn't as inspiring as Blackheart. The colour included in that nickname gives readers hints of how that version of the Golden Company would have been much more likely to fall in line with John Con's plans. This current version could be much more fickle. Plus, the surname Toyn gets another mention to go along with Simon, the leader of the Kingswood Brotherhood, and Terence, the Kingsguard of Aegon IV who slept with his king's mistress. So at least Miles has some kind of previous prestige in the story, whereas Harry has nothing. All of how Strickland has been mentioned just once previous to this, and it was Duck talking about how Harry let him do some smithing work in Tyrion's earlier chapter. So definitely not all that inspiring, and another concern to add to the list for Jon Con, as well as something else he's lost thanks to this mission. Just another friend left behind to die when he wasn't there. So we have some extra tension built for the chapter, as we don't know how this meeting will go and if this hurdle can be cleared. But we also get a much better example of the more being politically astute. She never said as much in front of Tyrion, but she clearly knows what is going on, knows the score about John Connington's past involvement, and to be honest, this makes me more interested in anything we've had so far that hints about the past. Not that we get any more answers here, unfortunately. Speaking of the past, John Con now gives us our first glimpse into his own, and he focuses on that which has tormented him for nearly two decades. Stony Sept. Surprisingly, neither Stony Sept nor the Battle of the Bells is mentioned by name until Storm of Swords. Hmm. But you might remember we were given the complete lowdown on what happened there thanks to Aya actually visiting the town and being given that information by Harwin. That was where Aya had her interactions with the crow cages and first crossed paths with Sandor again, you might remember. But that was hearing about it as a story passed down a generation later. We're now in the mind of someone who was not only there, but was in command. So you can see what we spoke about earlier in terms of how exciting it can be to have a POV from that era who was involved so heavily. Clearly, given the fact that he is still dreaming of it pretty regularly, we know the battle had a major influence on John Carlton. It has never left him as his dream self continues to search his waking self never finished. It's almost turned into a tick of some degree, a loss so heavy that he, at the same time, can never escape it and yet never truly revisit it. Deep bronze booms and silver chiming pounded through his skull, a maddening cacophony of noise that grew ever louder until it seemed as if his head would explode. 
That's just a wonderfully written sentence to get across the obsession that John has. It's the bells that take the form. Really, the whole battle, the result, his failure is always there, booming away inside. So we can see why he's agreed to this huge mission and how much his success matters to him. John Con goes further. It's not just a loss to him, it's the loss. In his mind, his failure not only meant the loss of the war in the realm, the end of a 300-year dynasty, and the change of everything, but of his beloved Silver Prince. If the griffin had slain the stag, as he puts it, the trident would have never happened and everything would be great. Now, there's a couple of assumptions hidden away in there. Firstly, that the fighting would have just stopped dead if he had won the Battle of the Bells. Clearly, that's not true. The rebellion would have essentially ended, yes, sure, but by this point, there had already been a bit too much damage done to just go back to the status quo. Too many great houses were in too deep, Eddard Stark and Hoster Tully were already marching towards them, so there would have likely been some bloodshed there, and then more later in quelling everything down, even after this battle. At the very least, there'd be a lot of people losing their heads, wouldn't there? Not that that part matters to Jonkon too much because it likely wouldn't have involved Rhaegar. But then again, consider how far gone Ares also was by this point, again, made much worse by the war. His suspicions of that war and Rhaegar's secrecy were particularly high, so who knows what would have come out of that given the chance. But there's also the rather confident assumption that John Connington would have definitely killed Robert had he been able to find him. Hmm, yeah, I don't know. Bit dodgy on that one. Maybe he would have if he managed to wound Hoster Tully and kill Dennis Aaron later on, so it's not out of the realm, especially when taking into consideration that Robert had an injury, but I wouldn't be willing to go all in on it. Either way, we see yet again the level of guilt he's been carrying around all this time and how much all this matters as a way to repay what he believes is his fault. He took the Iron Throne from House Targaryen and Rhaegar especially, that's how he thinks of it. Now there is a chance to give it back, which coincidentally shows how soul-splitting it's going to be if he ever finds out he's done this for someone who is not a Targaryen or at least not Rhaegar's son. The Moor drags him back to the present by again advocating that Aegon should be kept secret. Note that she always uses the styles Prince for Aegon and Queen for Daenerys. She seems pretty respectful of the Targaryens as a house, so is that a hint that she's a loyalist or some long-lost member? Yeah, we're probably going too far into it now, if I'm honest. Jon Con shows off his frustration for Daenerys not being where he wants her to be, as well as all of Illyra's many failed plans considering Viserys, etc. He's sick of failed plans and waiting. He wants to get on with it, and luckily later on we'll see that he shares that with the Golden Company. And also unknown to him, it fits very well again with what Tyrion has been whispering. He's preparing to go on yet another rant until Yandri announces that Howden has finally returned, and he's brought these three apparently critical horses with him. Before we get to that though, Jon gives a final thought on the moor, letting slip there is at least one part of this crew he is genuinely fond of. But as we guessed earlier, that is not going to stop his mission. He'll step over a hundred fond people if it gets him to his goal quicker. No amount of prayer would put him on the Iron Throne, however. That was Griff's task. He had failed Prince Rhaegar once. He would not fail his son, not whilst life remained in his body. So that doubles down on what we've already said, and confirms that everyone involved, minus young Griff, is just a tool for a task. And again, George slips in that little hint about the time limits. John continues that way of thinking while appraising these horses of Howden's, the ones made more expensive by yet more Dothraki presence. They're just everywhere at the moment. He's also annoyed at Howden for allowing Tyrion to escape, which is fair given Tyrion's repute for guile and trouble, and especially given what he now knows, he could easily make major trouble down the road. Even with him being convinced Tyrion intended to escape, just the possibility of capture is a problem. Suppose he is being taken back to Cersei, suppose he's tortured into giving up the info that he knows, or does so to try and bargain for his life. The last thing they want is for the Iron Throne to be aware of their coming, so that is definitely something to be worried about, 
But you can see John's frustration at having to delegate and share out the roles. He can't trust anyone to get it done. He wants to control everything because that's how critical it is to him. And he's showing that even though he obviously has quite the partnership with Halden, he'd also have no problem leaving him behind if he's not pulling his weight. On top of that, we get a mini example of what will be the larger theme of John Connington's two chapters, a regret over not being more cutthroat and violent because he believes he has failed or come against hardship. This time, it's just the fact he didn't kill Tyrion straight off. So we have the small scale now, but the large is still to come. It's optics time now, that becomes the name of the game, as it will remain for most of the chapter. John Connington was forged in the royal court of the Red Keep. He knows how royalty is supposed to look and the worth that that look has on affecting the men who see it. Sue begins to think out the details, such as arriving on horses instead of wading ashore from the river, making sure that young Griff has the best horse of the three, even if it lessens his own position. Ideally, he'd want even better horses, but this is what they've got. And the Moor has also dressed the lad for the occasion. Shiny black boots, a black coat, and three red rubies. Red and black. Dragon colours. That was good. You look a proper prince, he told the boy. Your father would be proud of you. That feels like a fairly major moment in their relationship, to be honest. The first time that John Con is speaking the truth about not being the boy's father, in front of us anyway. It seems like it's a signal that they'll no longer be pretending to the rest of the world as well. Again, the focus is on optics, and it's dual-edged. Half of it is just looking pristine and proper and a level higher than everyone else, someone that you would be proud to fight for, and the other is to give a clear signal of exactly who he is and why you, the Golden Company, should definitely want to fight for him given your history. If John Con does want to replace the Rhaegar in his life, it sure looks like he's doing okay so far. I like the sound of that, Aegon said. My army. A smile flashed across his face. Hmm, uh, I include this because it's not really what you want to be hearing from someone about to be given control of an army. Maturity issues might be blaring already, but more interestingly, he also shows how deep Tyrion's claws have got by immediately second-guessing whether the Golden Company will adhere to him. Annoyingly, to John Con, that echoes exactly what Lamore has been saying. So when Aegon says that, hey, Tyrion told me not to trust anybody, John Con has to concede that is pretty good advice generally, but then if he gives too much credence to Tyrion's words, the boy will just run away with the rest as well, so he has to walk the line here of keeping young Griff in control while also empowering him. And he ends up giving what I must say is pretty intelligent and enlightened advice. You can't trust everyone, but trusting no one is also a sure road to disaster. You have to walk a balance. Give nothing until it's earned, but once it's earned, make sure your people know it's worth earning in the first place. There's some echoes of Ned giving advice to Robin there, I think. And for all we might say of the bad things that John Connington is likely to do in the future, we must give props when required. This is one such instance, and it does install a little faith in this whole plan to grow a perfect prince. If John Con has been dishing out advice like this the whole time, the kid might just have a chance. Plus, we also get this little nudge. But go too far down that road, and the mistrust can poison you, make you sour and fearful. King Ares was one such. By the end, even Rhaegar saw that plain enough. So you know we always like such little tidbits about Rhaegar's opinions on his father, because it allows us to theorise about the plan for a coup or something else to get Ares off the throne. They're some of the largest uh, alas alarms in recent history. Unfortunately, that's all we get for now. All the possible preparation is done. This will either work or it won't. So John Connington, his prince and his half-maester jump on their horses and head off to find the golden company that they need so badly. And after passing through some surprisingly beautiful surroundings, they find them. Let me give you the quote here. It was a camp that even Arthur Dane might have approved of. Compact, orderly, defensible. A deep ditch had been dug around it, with sharpened stakes inside. The tents stood in rows, with broad avenues between them. The latrines had been placed beside the river, so the current would wash away the wastes. The horse lines were to the north, and beyond them, two dozen elephants grazed beside the water, pulling up reeds of their trunks. Griff glanced at the grey beasts for approval. There is not a war horse in all of Westeros that will stand against them. 
So the camp they come across is immediately solidified as organised, efficient and proper. There's even that Arthur Dane mention, which you love to see, especially as it's another reminder that we're in the mind of someone who would actually know what such a legend would approve of. This focus on a probably regimented camp gives a direct contrast to the various hubbub and messes we'll see outside Marine later on. We have and will see sellsword companies or Yunkish armies who just do not know what they're doing whatsoever, but this company is clearly built different. They are better, they are a true army. So already we're seeing the worth of Tyrion's persuasion because he's advised Aegon to wield what is obviously a pretty potent weapon, perhaps the most potent in all of Essos, minus the unsullied Order Dragons. Plus, I just like this quote because I like to nerd out about things like cramp organisation and logistics of how to make it as defensible, yet as dangerous as possible. But then, you and I are reading the same series, so you'll probably know how important such notes are. As we move forward, John Con highlights the elephants as well, like you heard there. Obviously, a former commander in Robert's Rebellion knows how the armies of Westeros work. He's well aware that they will not be able to handle these beasts, and without the fallback of constant cavalry charges, most generals in Westeros would be completely stumped, so we get even more build-up for our potential future invasion and how those battles are actually going to look, especially maybe that one outside Storm's End, cough cough. All of this adds up to us really wondering what this means for the fate of Westeros. It was one thing being told that either Young Griff or Daenerys might gain these guys as allies, or even Tyrion telling the lad to push west with them now, but seeing how clearly deadly they are going to be is another thing entirely. That tension is rising again, both for the overall of what an assault on Westeros might actually look like, and remember, we've been dreaming of that in some variation since the beginning, and also whether Jon Con and the others can win their allegiance in the first place. Tall battle standards of cloth of gold flapped atop lofty poles along the perimeters of the camp. Beneath them, armed and armoured sentries walked their rounds with spears and crossbows, watching every approach. Griffith feared that the company might have grown lax under Harry Strickland, who had always seemed more concerned with making friends and enforcing discipline, but it would seem his worries had been misplaced. John is also glad to see that, that discipline still rules across the camp, even with the change in leadership. It's some weight off his mind in terms of wondering what kind of operation Harry Strickland is running, but also, it's pretty intimidating. They're likely to be harder to push around if they're still strong. Again, this just isn't what we're used to when we think of swords. The Golden Company is on another tier. But unfortunately, we can't stand around admiring camps all day. We need to actually meet some of the members, as we do here with the introduction of Sir Franklin Fowers which is a pretty good start. It's someone that John Con knows from the old days and obviously knows him back. Someone he can have a bit of a banter with. Yeah, here we are, we're back with the boys, yeah. And Howard knows him too, so it's a good little stepping stone. And it's also a good start for the general theme of the Golden Company and the type of man that John is going to try and appeal to, as we find Sir Franklin is obviously from the Reach and his mother was raped by a fossaway. So as in keeping with so many here, Sir Franklin has a gripe with the homeland, some motivation to go back and claim vengeance, and it also ties into that friends in the reach idea that we'll be getting to later. Plus, we're being shown that John Con does still know people, they're still around, he still has some influence. This is all adding up to be really, really important. Again, all theoretical before, but it's real now. And you have to imagine this is going for young Gris mind as well, that the old guy is actually coming through for you. Still, as Franklin Flowers escorts them through the camp to this war council that's been called to deal with the Volunteers. John Con wonders just how many would actually recognise him. They lucked out, to be honest, meeting Franklin Flowers first, but to the grand majority, he's a nobody. Or even worse, they would have heard the tale of him drinking himself to death at least after being kicked out for stealing from the war chest, stealing from his fellow members of the company. You've got to imagine that is just about the biggest no-no from these guys. So we get a little bit of backstory of how John left the company and the lie that Varys forced him to live through. Even without this information, you get the sense that he's feeling nostalgic walking through the camp. He's lamenting those 12 lost years that he gave up for this ultimate mission. Like we've had via Jamie in the past, we can guess that a war camp or being around fellow soldiers is where John feels most at home. It's his happy place. So it's bad enough thinking what could have been and what he's given up, but it also has to be under this truly shameful lie of Varys's. 
These are the extra details that Varys is master at dealing with, so we can't knock the idea, but it's just another fuel of motivation for Jon Con, to prove to these men around him that he was never a betrayer or a thief, and to eventually pay Varys back once the mission is complete. Of course, he never stops to think that Ilya and Varys are probably planning the very same removal of him once he's delivered their precious cargo to the Iron Throne. Let me live long enough to see the boys sit the Iron Throne, and Varys will pay for that slight and so much more. Then we'll see who's soon forgotten. Let me live long enough, that's what he says. So again, George is being very, very sneaky and inserting these phrases that don't even seem out of place here, but make so much more sense at the reveal at the end. Very clever stuff. Lamenting continues to be the activity of the day once they reach the main tent and are left outside amongst the various skulls of the former Golden Company leaders. And George takes the opportunity for a quick dip into history with Maylis the Monstrous, a man who in many ways is responsible for much that we've seen in the saga as a whole, given that his War of the Nine Penny Kings brought so many leaders of the Great Houses together. We know how that ended up. This is also where we get the notes of the previous toy, and we even get a glimpse of the famous Bittersteel, founder of the company itself. But they are all background noise, as John Connington again focuses on Miles' toy, on Blackheart, and has a genuinely emotional moment remembering how this tough, seemingly cruel leader was always fair, a father to his men, which is an incredibly high compliment, and a good friend to John Con himself. So again, we get that sense of sadness of not being around when another friend died and the personal stakes of all this are just rising higher and higher for him. This had better work. It better be all worth it now that I'm looking at what I gave up. Still, he does insist this is ultimately the right course, specifically because of what the promised goal is. But Griff did not regret the path he'd chosen. When I return to Westeros, it will not be as a skull atop a pole. He could have had what he would call a great life here amongst these men. Lots of glories, lots of gold, lots of brothers. But all of it pales compared to the promise of Westeros and true home. And he's about to make that exact pitch to his former friends. Into the tent we go to meet the assembled officers of the Golden Company. Men who will be very important to our three characters here and maybe to the fate of Westeros. The passage begins with more tension raising. He sets knives behind some of those smiles. So that lie of Varys's we were just told about is already coming home to roost. Just because he's still friendly with some, the newbies will likely not know anything about him other than his reputation as a thief, and some of the oldies might still be believing that and therefore feel stung by betrayal and not too eager to accept a sudden tale that it was all just a ruse, don't worry, and we're again wondering if this is even going to work. Before we find out, we get a good look at the men making up this company. And for fans who have already looked into the history of the Seven Kingdoms, or Red Fire and Blood, or the Duncan Egg Tales, we get some great nerd moments as we pick out names like the Peaks or Lofton. Chuck some coals in the mix for good measure, they're all here. And obviously the connection between all these names is that they once existed in Westeros but no longer. So it adds to the pile of going home. That's the theme. There's also associate members too, like Black Black, commander of the company's archers. He's going to be of high importance later on once they reach the shores of Westeros. But unfortunately, all of this reminiscing and focusing on the lie of his theft has left John Con in a bit of a mood, and he's not all that impressed by what he sees. Ghosts and liars, Griff thought as he surveyed their faces. Revenants from forgotten wars, lost causes, failed rebellions, a brotherhood of the failed and the fallen, the disgraced and the disherited. This is my army. This is our best hope. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement. Even if we should note, he calls them his army, ten seconds after telling young Griff they belong to him. And in fairness, He's not wrong. For all their prestige or organisation or cool names and nods to history, they are still a collection of people who have ultimately never delivered on their supposed goal. Still, he's ignoring how well this plays into their hands, but I suppose that is still to come. And there is one member left, their leader, Harry Strickland. And if the Golden Company has appeared fearsome and dangerous, then the man at their top looks less so. Indeed, we get an image that I'm pretty sure we've not ever seen before in the entire series, a supposed soldier having to soak his poor tootsies. John Con thinks this is a mark of weakness, 
And, well, he's not wrong. Men can have sore feet and need a good sit down, same as anyone, I'm not denying that. But here, of all places, our war camp, or war council especially, it seems very out of place and sends a definite message. Certainly, the reader is wondering how such a man remains head of a company and hasn't been killed off or chucked out yet. This definitely wouldn't fly with any of the other sellsor companies. Overall, I believe the message to be one of compliance. Maybe the nuts and bolts are taken care of in terms of the camp, but the general tone is one of being happy with their current situation and not seeking out anything too strenuous. As John confirms with this talk of the Stricklands boasting about this time they're supposed to be fighting against in their exile. So inclination is one problem, but another that is brought up is knowledge. Did Blackheart pass on this secret plan and the truth of John Connington's dismissal, or was there no time? If it's the latter, that's a whole extra hurdle to deal with, and there's no guarantee that John Con's persuasion will be accepted. It does sound like a pretty tall tale, we must all admit. Well, there's no time like the present to find out. Outside, John Connington labelled John Griffiths Squire, but the time for such games has passed. Instead, we have reached the part of the first official proclamation. Let it ring out across the land. Here it is. No man could have asked for a worthier son, Griff said. But the lad is not of my blood, and his name is not Griff. My lords, I give you Aegon Targaryen, firstborn son of Rhaegar, Prince of Dragonstone, by Princess Elia of Dawn. Soon, with your help, to be Aegon the Sixth of his name, King of Andals, the Rhoynar, and the First Men, and Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. Silence greeted his announcement. Someone cleared his throat. Ah, there's more tumbleweed than mic drop. You have to feel a bit sorry for him. He's probably been dreaming of this moment for the best part of a decade. It's a clear mark in the sand of how close they are. And there's no reaction. It's not exactly the King of the North speech, is it? So John Kong clicks. It's because it's old news. They've heard this apparently wondrous tale already, and it isn't exciting them. So good news that they already know, and he doesn't have to go and explain it all. But bad news that they aren't already on their knees, swearing their swords to Aegon. Harry's reasoning for telling them the truth makes sense. It doesn't matter how secure your company or how loyal the men are. This is a business, and it's not one you can run by moving away from a surefire hit in the disputed lands so you can come and sit in the middle of the continent and continue turning down money. The news is worse when Harry tells them they've already had offers from Yunkai to go and fight against Daenerys, with seemingly unimaginable rewards being offered in terms of payment and slaves. So that's not good. Not only does John Con have to persuade them to leave for an uncertain campaign, but to abandon another apparent sure win that would pay every man handsomely. And it also gives a pretty grim picture of what the Yunkish are planning for Daenerys and Marine. More of that in the next chapter. Harry relates how he didn't outright turn this too-good-to-be-true offer down, or his men might have thought he'd lost his marbles. And he does all this in the middle of a frankly hilarious paragraph where he's advising his squire on exactly how to dry his toes without hurting them. He really just can't make this stuff up. It's definitely not the vibe that John was hoping for. So he has to rally. Hey, if it's a war you want, I've got something to sell you. But before he can even get to that, the other officers start butting in. Hang on, hang on, whoa, you know your plan has already failed before it even began, right? Daenerys has not come west, we're already stumped. Lysona Ma ponders why such a thing could occur, and obviously none of these men could ever dream of something like the liberation of slaves or trying to make people's lives better, but Harry's not concerned with reasons, but results instead. Danny isn't here, and she's not coming anytime soon. Her defeat seems all but certain to him, given the amount of enemies gathering around her, as we're reminded of again and again in these chapters. The tattered prince even gets a shout out, just we have some good chapter sequencing with Quentin up next. And on top of that, she has enemies close to the Golden Company that at this very moment are getting more and more annoyed with their presence. So the bad news just keeps piling for John Con. The company is convinced of that defeat and convinced that this whole mission has failed without her. So he points out well, she's got unsullied and, more importantly, dragons. That's what we're basing this whole thing on anyway, so let's have some faith in them. But here the conversation gets away from him slightly as the officers begin to argue over what their best option is. And we get the sense this argument has already occurred a few times. Several choices are presented. 
we could go to her, she can't get to us. But how? What fleet can get us there? And how would we manage to get through the enemy blockade in Marine's waters already? Okay then, well, let's accept the Junkersh offer. So we can hitch a ride with those guys, and then once we are there, we can change our mind and pay them back immediately. It's probably here that readers click we've got even more chapter sequencing with what's going next by giving us an almost exact replication of what Quentin and his pals had to choose from when they were in Volantis and try and get to Marine. It's very, very similar. Harry Strickland shoots down both offers and then delivers perhaps the worst news yet. Let me remind you, it was Miles Toyne who put his seal to this secret pact, not me. I would honour his agreement if I could, but how? It seems plain to me that the Targaryen girl is never coming west. Westeros was her father's kingdom, Marine is hers. If she can break the Yunkai, she'll be Queen of Slaver's Bay. If not, she'll die long before we could hope to reach her. So there is no intention of going through with the grand plan. The Golden Company will not join them, Daenerys will not be gained, and it seems perhaps everything else Jon hoped for will come to ruin too. But he isn't despairing just yet. None of it is actually surprising him. He knows Harry to be a good administrator and organiser, but he's not a warrior. He was never going to pick anything that might be kind of tough or hurt those swollen toes of his. There's one more suggestion of the land route from Franklin Flowers, but Harry shoots that down too, and you can see that this is a man who will find any excuse not to do something difficult. He does not believe in the core plan, and Jonkon certainly doesn't believe in him. And while this has all been going on, Prince Aegon has just been standing there quietly, taking it all in. But inside, his mind has clearly been whirring away, the voice of a certain Lannister ringing again and again like the bells that infest his false father's mind. Like we mentioned last week, sheer fate has made Tyrion's words seem even more appealing. Now there's an actual logical reason to do as he suggested, a viable excuse that will get the Golden Company on his side and maybe provide exactly what he's now convinced he needs, an equaliser between himself and his aunt Daenerys. So having heard all that's been said, especially the essential confirmation that they are not going after Daenerys and have no further alternatives, Aegon takes what is basically his first ever step of his own making. And then Prince Aegon spoke. Then put your hopes on me, he said. Daenerys is Prince Rhaegar's sister, but I am Rhaegar's son. I am the only dragon that you need. Griff put a black-gloved hand upon Prince Aegon's shoulder. Spoken boldly, he said, but think what you are saying. I have, the lad insisted. Why should I go running to my aunt as if I were a beggar? My claim is better than her own. Let her come to me, in Westeros. Tyrion Lannister, you son of a gun, you did it. This proposal is well-timed and well-suited to its audience. To a company of men who are kind of bored, kind of itching to get involved, and are likely getting a bit tired of cautious leadership, especially when they pride themselves on being rebellious and fearless. Well, this kind of ballsy suggestion, coming from a mere kid, is exactly the kind of thing to capture their interest, as Franklin Flowers lays out here. Franklin Flowers laughed. I like it, sail west, not east. Leave the little queen to her olives, and seat Prince Aegon upon the Iron Throne. The boy has stones, give him that. Harry is quick on the draw to shoot down the idea again. He insists none of it will work without Daenerys, that they specifically need the marriage to lend validation to their claim and will never be accepted without it. Some level of that is true, but we've already established that Daenerys isn't coming and there's going to be people who deny him either way. We, and Jon, get the sense that if Daenerys were here, this guy would be insisting that it doesn't work with her. He'll say anything to get out of actually having to go and fight anywhere. While Jon Con wonders how his dear friend Blackheart ever handed the company over to this guy, he starts riding with Aegon's idea pointing out that the sea is only blocked to the east, not the west, and Volantis might even help them leave just to get them out of there, so Tyrion has some more circumstantial luck in his proposed plan. Ten seconds ago, it was bad news on every front, and now everything is falling perfectly into place. Again, good chapter sequencing, you'll see why at the end of Quentin's chapter. So the ball is rolling, Aegon's idea is picking up momentum as the other officers join in. One of the Coles even points out that this could work in their favour, as all the news will be saying that only Targaryen in the world is stuck in Marine. No one will be expecting another to land on their shores this soon. Although, this guy is giving a bit too much credit to the lions that supposedly have the dragon scent. 
but Harry still puts up a fight. What about the dragons? They are the entire point of this plan, even if they're actually a fairly recent addition. It is they who will win us the war, them and the Unsullied. That's always been the plan that we promised to stick to. But Harry has poked the hole in his own argument there by bringing up plans as Tristan Rivers goes through the many variations of this plot. First it was Viserys and 50,000 Dothraki Screamers, then Daenerys and 50,000 Dothraki Screamers, then Daenerys and her dragons arriving in Pentos, then Daenerys and her dragons meeting them in Volantis. It's changed four times so why not a fifth? And we must take the briefest of pauses to enjoy the surmising of all of Varys and Illyro's failed efforts. We've said it many many times before right from the beginning, normally with an eye towards this very moment, that for all their framing as the grand schemers and these ultimate puppet masses of an entire continent, their plans have always succumbed to the human element that they could never hope to predict. They've always been far too confident in their ability, and I'll say again, they've been impeccably lucky to even reach this point where some version of their ultimate goal is still possible. It would not be outside the realms of possibility for this to just all crumbled like 50 times already. But anyway, Tristan Rivers is echoing what much of the company is thinking. Plans suck. They never work. We're only ever told half of them, and they remove our sense of freedom and choice, which is why we are who we are in the first place. So let's rebel again. Let's do things our own way. So what follows is nearly a full page of the officers of the Golden Company piling on reasons why this is a great idea, with Harry Strickland barely getting out a word in protest each time. It's actually pretty funny to read. The new reasons include the ability to always retreat across the sea as they did in days of old, although it perhaps gives you an idea of some of the foolishness of these officers, how casually they toss out such a prospect. There's the fact that Tywin is dead and Tommen sits the throne, and Jon Con himself gets involved by announcing that Dawn will surely join them, given that it's not just Rhaegar's son returning home, but Elia's as well. And again, luck just happens to be on their side that Martell-Lannister relations are at their most volatile since Elia's death. There is definitely some cosmic alignment in all of this. Jon Con bored over Harry Strickland to make that last point, but when Aegon asserts that a mere woman sits between them and the Iron Throne, Harry does find his voice a bit. Unfortunately, he uses it to paint Cersei as a formidable foe. That's misplaced. With Jaime by her side. Also misplaced. With money and the Tyrells in hand. Well, he's at least half right on that current point. As it stands, the alliance with the Tyrells does exist, but it becomes more and more fraught by the day. Plus, while their full strength would obviously be cause for concern, it just so happens that half the Tyrell forces have urgent business on the wrong side of the continent thanks to Euron and his Ironborn. So again, cosmic alignment, even if none of these guys know it. This is also where we get this important quote. Laswell Peak wrapped his knuckles on the table. Even after a century, some of us still have friends in the Reach. The power of Highgarden may not be what Mace Tyrell imagines. Ooh, pretty interesting that one. Trust a peak to say such things, those that we've seen to be sneaky and ambitious and of low loyalty through George's accompanying works. Before we move on, let's take a quick moment to focus on Aegon's mere woman assertion. I don't think it can be ignored that there is a level of sexism involved in this decision here. It's never said out loud, but when you come down to it, these men would rather follow a fellow man into battle than fight for a queen. It's similar to what we saw in Tyrion 6, where Aegon clearly didn't want to be seen as less than a woman, or not as brave as a woman. So we can add all that onto Aegon thinking that Cersei can't defend Westeros because of her gender, when we know the truth is that Cersei can't defend Westeros because she's an evil, self-centred nutcase. It's nothing to do with her being a woman at all. So this is all just... Disappointing, really. It's not surprising in this society, or in a war camp full of men, but definitely disappointing especially when we know how worthy Daenerys actually is. I guess you can't teach everything on a pole boat, and, well, I think it's worth mentioning anyway. But back to the main conversation, Aegon has won. His rock is really rolling, and the Golden Company have bought in entirely. Prince Aegon, said Tristan Rivers, we're your men. Is this your wish, that we sail west instead of east? It is, Aegon replied eagerly. If my aunt wants marine, she's welcome to it. I will claim the Iron Throne by myself, with your swords and your allegiance. Move fast and strike hard, 
and we can win some easy victories before the lasses even know that we've landed, that will bring others to our cause. It's pretty damn telling that we've got to this point without Harry Strickland actually giving his consent. The prospect is just too thrilling, Aegon too enchanting, and now we see the specific traits of the Golden Company, as Peake says that he'd rather die in Westeros than anywhere else. Mark Mandrake wants lands and a great castle, and Franklin Flowers just wants to kill some fossilways. So that's all the elements, isn't it? A desire to return home, a desire to take their revenge, and then we're all sellsword share, desire to get paid. John Connor is just as caught up in the movement. He thinks of it as not being the cautious road, but he's had enough of that to last a lifetime, and that was before he was put on a timer. He's under Aegon's smile just like the rest. As we discussed right at the beginning of the chapter, John Connor is going to take the quick route. Caution be damned because he needs to see this mission complete, and this is just as good an example as any, while also again hinting he's likely to commit a war crime because of that timer. Win or lose, he would see Griffin's roost again before he died, and be buried in the tomb beside his father's. That's our third and final example of George slipping in this note of death that will become so much more apparent as we go. We know his rule of three and it works here. So Aegon finally receives his kingly moment as the men of the Golden Company swear their swords to him, even Harry Strickland. One moment it is for both this young man, who has always been told he's destined for such great things, and for John Connington, who has waited so long and sacrificed so much to see it. The time of waiting is done. They are finally out, on their way, even doing it their own way for once. John Connington is going home. He's going to make everything right. With that done, Aegon gets taken on a tour so he can get to know his own men. Halden is sent to collect them all in Raleigh and bid goodbye to Yandri and Yasilla, and I hope they do really get their reward at some point in the future. Meanwhile, John Connington is left inside to ponder how Aegon's grand adventure is truly beginning while his own is coming to an end. All he asked was time. He had waited so long. Surely the gods would grant him a few more years, enough time to see the boy he'd called his son seated on the Iron Throne. To reclaim his lands, his name, his honour, to steal the bells that rang so loudly in his dreams whenever he closed his eyes to sleep. We get tied back to the very beginning of the chapter and the core elements of this character. The reclamation of what was lost and taken, that's important, but nowhere near so important as the silencing of the bells that sound his failure and his repayment to his beloved Rhaegar. Even on its own, I think that's an emotional journey that is really worth investing in, but George decides to go one further by pulling off what I consider one of the best end-of-chapter reveals in the entire series. Alone in the tent, as the gold and scarlet rays of the setting sun shone through the open flap, John Connington shrugged off his wolfskin cloak, slipped his mail shirt off over his head, settled on a camp stool, and peeled the glove from his right hand. The nail on his middle finger had turned as black as jet, he saw, and the grey had crept up almost to the first knuckle. The tip of his ring finger had begun to darken too, and when he touched it with the point of his dagger, he felt nothing. I'll say again, it's one of the best ever chapter ends or reveals. Plenty of contenders, sure, but there's not many that work so well in a single chapter setting in a vacuum that make you immediately look back at the entire chapter and go, oh, and see it a whole new way. See all these little clues that George has snuck in, but also snuck them in right in front of your face. And it completely changes the emotional investment of what's at risk here. We've plenty covered the bells and Rhaegar and the restoration and the going home, but now I realise it's become even more important to him because that's literally all he has left. He has to succeed now because he will only last so much longer. He has to get it done because there's no more chances and he's begging the fates or the gods to just allow him time to do these things and in fairness he's pretty confident that he will. Death, he knew, but slow. I still have time. A year. Two years. Five. Some stone men live for ten. Time enough to cross the sea, to see Griffin's roost again, to add the usurper's line for good and all, and put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. Then, Lord John Connington could die content. Those two quotes there, as well as being just beautiful writing, this wonderful sense of the man stepping away from the spotlight and 
taking off his work clothes, his armour, and just kind of stripping down to the bare essentials to reveal this core secret. I mean, wow. And again, it just adds this really solid layer onto this incredibly complex character. I have to say, I really do enjoy this character and his chapters. I find myself super invested in them. I enjoy the content of these chapters and their military basis, but I also think of all the late additions that George makes in the saga, his construction of John Commenton is one of the very best to come in this late stage. I doubt I'm doing a good job explaining it, but I just find his story and arc really, really interesting. I think he probably gets lost in the shuffle of things to look forward to and wins, given that he's technically a background character, but to me, he's right up there. And not even so much for how his investors play out on the political stage, but how it all winds up for him personally. Again, we're sure he's going to do something pretty bad in the name of these goals. He's almost certain to wind up being a bad guy, but he's still interesting to me. As is the whole last section of this chapter, the stirring up of the Golden Company, the evolution of young Griff to Aegon as a leader and a prince, how the wants and the needs of this group are played on and how quickly they tumble and basically convince himself this is a great idea. John Con essentially did nothing in that meeting, yet it worked anyway. War is coming to Westeros, and a successful war at that. Tyrion's plan has worked, and now the entire game board that we know as A Song of Ice and Fire has just been majorly tilted. This chapter matters. Everything about the end of the saga is likely going to be affected by this meeting of men talking themselves into revenge, home, and doing things their way. I'll say it once more. It's damn important. And hold on to that feeling, because it's going to be a long, long time until we speak about John Connington and his chums again. When we do, we'll be discussing some of the immediate success they've had and the building of this adventure. But basically, what we've just covered in the 25th chapter of the last book to be published is the first step in a story that is likely to wind up as big as any other in the end. Here we go, folks. It is third act central of this saga. And to finish this one off, if you like chapter sequencing, well, I've got an astounding example for you here. At the end of this chapter and the end of The Lost Lord, we have this whole company of veteran warriors all buying into this story and getting caught up in the thrill of what is basically a new adventure for them. Well, where have we seen that kind of promise before? Where have we seen it end up? That's right, with Quentin back in The Merchant's Man so long ago, so maybe now is a good time to follow up on that and see how it's going. Because back then, we'd already seen those promises turn sour, and now in Quentin 2, the windblown, George is definitely going to place the potential glory of war side by side with its horrors. So let's take a look into that now, shall we? Let's kick off Quentin 2, The Windblown. Hey, remember this guy? Yeah, nearly 20 chapters ago, we were introduced to this brand new character right at the beginning of the book, like we were with John Connington today. And we're then left to just forget about him and his tragic little mission headed eastward. Well, what better time to bring him back into the fold now that we've been speaking about sellsword companies and the goings-on in the war for Slaver's Bay? That's where he's headed, so let's add him into the mix. Like I say, that's just a new focus of this part of the book. We've had plenty of build-up for that kind of area, that kind of plot thread in Danny's last two chapters, Tyrion's last, and again, obviously, that John Collington one we just covered. If you cast your mind all the way back to Quentin 1, that was mainly about us discussing how the hopes and dreams of young adventurers had already been dashed by reality and how they had much worse to come in front of them. Well, if that chapter and what came before it were a sip of the reality drink, Quentin 2 is a fully-fledged pint in the face. That chapter ended with another fanciful way of progressing on this mission that Quentin foolishly refused to budge on, joining up with the windblown so that they could be transported east of them. And their biggest problem with the idea at the time was their beloved honour. Well, that is a distant memory now, as Quentin and his poor fellows are thrust right into some of the most brutal warfare we ever see, as the curtain is lifted on the rotting carcass that is Astapor. Yes, we've been told the details of what's happened there, 
but it's a far bloody cry from actually seeing it laid out bare. The dreams of adventure were already gone, but even just tough struggles seemed like a goal to aspire to compared to the blood-soaked horror of true warfare. And if that isn't enough, we also do have that turncloak dishonest stuff the guys are already worried about, even if they do kind of luck out a bit in how it all wraps up at the end. So what follows is a pretty good cross-section of what is happening in this part of the world. Violence and bloody death, followed by people desperately trying to work out how they can best benefit from the chaos and confusion of war, and being more than willing to go back on their word to achieve such. Given what we'll see in Marine later on, it's a pretty good warning for what's to come. So let's dive into this chapter that again, is politics, is war, just like all the others, but it has a real specific viewpoint that, I'll be honest, made me quite emotional, it means quite a lot to me, so, well, let's see what I mean there, shall we? So we've gone from one camp to the other, haven't we? We've gone from the Golden Company to the Windblown. Like I say, we ended last chapter looking toward the future, and most of this chapter will actually look back into the past to detail the savagery that Quentin and the others have gone through. Because here, at our starting point, we're already past that Astaport has been and gone, and we instead begin with something that we are definitely familiar with, focus on Daenerys. Rumour is spreading through the camp like a hot wind, that's how they describe it. This woman that is the focal point of so many is obviously the hottest news possible, and they say that she is coming herself to Yunkai, she is entering the war. There will be fire and blood, and Quentin is going to be that much closer to his dream, the one person who can make all of his losses worth it. So readers have to take a moment to get their bearings here. Unless something rather drastic has happened off-page since we last saw Daenerys just a single chapter ago, we know she is definitely not on the march to Yunkai, as much as that prospect might be intriguing to us. So we've got some immediate interest, what started this rumour, and what will be the reaction when the truth of the matter is discovered. We could spend some time talking about how rumours are a major part of life as a sellsword in a sellsword company, and in what close quarters these chaps all are, and how they have to interact, but I think we're kind of aware how these structures tend to work. Quentin and the others might not be able to fully trust anyone around them, and definitely can't be trusted themselves, but they are in this together, and this quick paragraph does a good job of getting across the different levels of this group, that's something we'll be returning to a little bit later on. Yet one of the characteristics of this company is the prominence of nicknames over real names, that's what we get here at the beginning. And that's pretty helpful for people wishing to hide their identity, which you can figure is probably quite a lot of them, and definitely is for our POV and its friends. I suppose not every company can have their commonality be something as cool as collective desire for revenge and a return to home, so we'll go with nicknames. But it does go from top to bottom, from the lowliest frog to the tattered prince himself at the very top. And we get the man's backstory here at the beginning as told by Dick Straw, as well as the impressive physical description of his multicoloured and yet faded cloak. His hair and mail were silver grey, but his ragged cloak was made of twists of cloth of many colours, blue and grey and purple, red and gold and green, magenta and vermilion and cerulean, all faded by the sun. So that one is pretty cool to imagine, yeah, that gives a definite mental image, doesn't it? As for his actual backstory, well, lasting for 30 years as the commander of your own sellsword company, with both enemies and ambitious underlings coming at you, and apparently coming up short, tells you everything you need to know about how capable this prince is. We're not dealing with a Harry Strickland soak your toes type now, no indeed. Instead, we have this tale of a young man once destined to become the new prince of Pentos, and deciding there was no way he was letting his life be spent like that. I recall that Illyro filled in a lot of this information for us in Tyrion's first chapter when he explained how selected Pentoshi princes are given lives of wonderful luxury until the day everything goes wrong. Then whether it be war or the weather or some act of the gods, the prince gets the blame and the punishment as the tattered prince's predecessor did. So instead, he chose a life of freedom and seemed to be quite successful with it. He's the only survivor of his fellow founders and the company is still going strong, so well done him. Clearly, he's a force to be reckoned with, as Quentin will find out much, much later. He's definitely one of the more intriguing, unanswered mysteries we have from Dance in terms of both identity and future role, 
This is something we'll have to speak of later on with his final request of Quentin and what the hell that all means, but we know at the very least he's going to be a big part of the battle for Marine as he leads the Windblown over to Daenerys in the Winds preview chapters. But we've spoken before about Jerris and Archbold being the link to the Tattered Prince still and keeping that thread going, even if we've really got no clue how that's going to work out here, how George's going to find space for all that, we are given the reasons why he would make such a demand right here at the beginning of this chapter. And really, it's more chapter sequencing, because it's the same vibe we got from the Golden Company, isn't it? Going back for revenge, going back for what you believe is due to you, and obviously going back for spoils as well. As for his eventual identity, and whether it's someone we should know, or has appeared in history before, well, yeah, maybe. That's not a requirement for me, I don't think everybody has to be someone important. But I can see why others theorise. I'm just looking forward to seeing him continue to be pretty cool, because... It's a cool character, isn't it? For now, he's at the complete other end of the scale to his fellow prince. That guy is at the top, giving commands. Quentin and the others are the rookies. They're the lowlies. That arrow fodder, that's what he calls himself. Just one of 2,000 that no one would miss if they were to fall. And that's an adjustment for Quentin to make. We've talked of the same for Tyrion, but this one's even quicker for Quentin. He is the Prince of Dawn and is used to being above just about everyone he's ever met and being treated accordingly. Quentin isn't a particularly arrogant fellow, lording above everyone else as if he were a Joffrey or something, but he is still proud, and this is definitely one of those things he probably didn't imagine when his father first gave him the mission. Dressing up as a merchant was already a, kind of a big step down for him, now he's just the company grunt. Even worse, he's the squire to Archibald in this scenario, which is another very, very tough for him to accept when he is, in fact, a knight. And while it could be easy to scoff at such worries, considering the actual situation they're in, I do sympathise with Quentin. As we've seen from Jamie to Brienne to multiple other characters, the act of being a knight and being knighted is entwined with many people's souls. It matters to them. It's part of their identity, a really big part. And having to not only hide that, but also to be knocked down to the level below to serve another is very difficult. It warps the sense of self, the sense of self-worth, and it's just a general knock on the ego. Considering everything else has gone so wrong, it's more than just a bit annoying for Quentin, who is still only a young man, so you can see why this kind of stuff would matter to him. But it is part of the plan, it does make sense, and his friends remind him that this is how they save his life. It's not a demotion, it just shifts the focus onto Green Guts, as Archibald is known here, and Dornish Gerald. Yet again, they will put their lives on the line to protect Quentin and to further the mission. Jerris explains here. Arch is the best fighter of the three of us, Drinkwater has pointed out, but only you can hope to wed the Dragon Queen. Wed her or fight her, Quentin thought. Either way, I will face her soon. The company has been called to march north now, chasing these hot wind rumours, so Quentin suddenly finds himself with a lot less preparation time than he had anticipated, and that's not good because the image of Daenerys Targaryen is growing larger and larger every time the wind blows and a new rumour about her whistles through his ears. Most of them are similar to what we heard in Sohorus, vile and crass hogwash about bathing in virgin blood or laying with horses. Then there is the twisting of truths such as ordering Khal Drogo to kill Viserys before then killing her own husband, or the breaking of truces and the other such stuff. Like we discussed in those previous chapters, it's kind of pathetic how the best lies Danny's enemies can come up with is just rubbish about horses and baths of blood. I think, or I hope, Quentin is smart enough to not listen to any of these details, but some do stick out to him. Such as the idea of her being mad, because her father was, and Quentin knows those tales, or maybe what they even say about flipping a coin to select Targaryen madness. So if the daughter is like the father, does that mean that he would be in legitimate trouble as her husband? I think we can all likely tell that Quentin isn't truly worried about physical harm, it's just a manifestation of his overall nervousness about not only having to meet Daenerys, but marry her too. When they left, she was just some far-off legend, barely on the edges of reality. She's a whole world away, we'll deal with that later. And she was painted very much as a girl alone in the world, in need of him. 
Every step closer brings her actual legend more into focus, and Quentin is realising that this is a woman larger than life itself. She has an entire continent swirling around her. She's done amazing things and been through unimaginable hardships, all while coming out on top. It's very, very similar to Tyrion's argument towards Aegon, actually. Quentin is thinking to himself, who the hell am I to marry such a woman? No, does he have like a tenth of the experience she does of the world in terms of war and politics and importance or even just self-reliance. Let's also remember this is a guy with basically zero experience with women. He's kissed like one girl, that's it. Daenerys has already been married once, has met a hundred men older and more exciting than him and could pretty much have her pick up anyone in the world. And he's supposed to just go up to her and talk and propose how in the world do you talk to someone like that when you are someone like quentin again let's sympathize a little bit this would be dreadful enough just to meet a girl so beautiful as daenerys and have to speak to her but when you add in the rest of the context and the fact his mission isn't to talk to her but to wed her you begin to see why he paints his trepidation as worrying for his safety because that's a bit more acceptable to him that's a bit kinder to worry about he's intimidated straight up and in all fairness he should be wouldn't you be i i definitely would I've been watching Last Christmas this week and I was thinking how intimidated I'd be to meet Amelia Clark, let alone Daenerys Targaryen. And like I say, she is like 50 times the person he is right now, despite being younger. That's not all Quentin's fault, but the fact remains either way. And we're going to see the truth of that when they meet later on. These two just aren't on the same tier at the moment. Or at least they're not close enough to bond very quickly in a high-pressure situation. If they'd had all the time in the world and there wasn't a war going on, who knows, but that's not the situation. And Quentin will later admit just how it felt to actually go up and talk to her and make his proposition. So his worries are good instinctually. He is self-aware. Though he does do it, in the end so let's give him props for that that was pretty ballsy and i'd like to add i don't think the intimidation is quite the same for quentin as it is for Aegon, in that Aegon was specifically worried that he'd be weaker or lesser than a girl and is uncomfortable facing a woman with this much clout and power and ability i don't think that's the case for quentin so much those things do all intimidate him but there's not like extra points of not liking this merely because she's a woman more powerful than him he doesn't seem like that kind of guy perhaps it's because he's dornish and has slightly more progressive attitudes after all he would have spent the majority of his life knowing he'd forever be number two to Ariane's number one. And let's remember, all this would be intimidating in the first place, but he's also woefully placed extra intensity upon himself by declaring that this is the only way he can make up for the deaths of his friends, if he's successful in getting her to marry him. So that's just really piling on extra, extra weight there. Quite silly from Quentin, actually. To avoid thinking of those worrisome future prospects, Quentin turns back to his recent past in Astapor, a place so vile it is sure to distract from any other worry. And now we learn why. The Red City was the closest thing to hell he ever hoped to know. The Yunkai had sealed the broken gates to keep the dead and dying inside the city, but the sights he had seen riding down those red brick streets would haunt Quentin Martel forever. Those lines alone are enough to feel haunting, but George gives these descriptions of what Quentin found as they charged through the city that I'm not going to read you here. But there's rivers literally filled with corpses, starving children fighting in the street, an impaled priestess, and fires everywhere makes the whole place seem like the rotten fruit that it really was. We really do get a vivid picture painted for us here, and what it represents is basically the last days of society. The entire structure of humanity has been eaten away until there are no more rules. People died in befouled streets, children starved, and the whole place burned to the ground as if it had been sacked, although most of the damage has actually been done by its own citizens, by its own people. It's an awful, awful image, and obviously is a very heavy weight for poor Quentin, or for anyone, to bear, to witness. We remember what an awful place Astapor was when we visited so long ago with Daenerys, and we can easily think to ourselves that this city earned its fate because of what it did to countless unsullied and other slaves over the many, many centuries. And you know what? That's fair, isn't it? This is a place of great evil, 
No wonder it basically transformed into a hell on earth. But then George gives us specific examples of children and priestesses suffering, and it becomes another fee-honourable example. We wanted bad stuff for Astapor, but this, when everyone suffers, despite the fact not everyone is guilty, even if the majority are. Either way, it really does stick out with you as something just completely chilling and horrible. This is an awful description George gives us here. It really does bite right through. I wonder if it is also supposed to be a symbol of what can happen when you let dragons out, as this was the first real place to feel their frame, even in the very slight way that they did. Perhaps it is, but more so, it is a tale of evil upon evil. The evil of the masters turning slaves evil. Revenge only be getting more evil, as George has told us about so many times before. And the chaos of having no structure or civilization in place, because everyone was looking out for themselves. Look how quickly this place just crumbled to dust because of that mentality. Look at this savagery once more. Yeah, it's, it's a tough old look. Anyway, everyone wants to leave that mess behind, so let's leave it in Quentin's memory for now. It's back to the present, back to the business of marching north, as Quentin informs Archibald of here, playing his role as the squire. In amongst this, we also get the note that the three of them had to abandon their gold and armour and their names back in Volantis in order for this plan to work. As a small sacrifice, given what their friends lost and what Quentin will lose, but still another loss and something else they've given up in this grand mission of theirs. And no doubt they had some pretty cool armour amongst them, but that's gone. They're just part of the faceless now. So off the windblown march after the declaration of the Tatter Prince, and the three of them cheer along so that they can't be accused of not playing their parts. But here is where the tension rises, and we get this real sense of kind of like uh, spy noir being behind enemy lines type vibe, type drama, as Quentin tells Jerris that they need to do it soon. That kind of sentence is capable of generating great tension on its own, even if we do already know in an overall sense what it is. But when you are surrounded by thousands of soldiers who would kill you if they knew, when you have to whisper in a foreign tongue and hope no one near you can understand, and when you have to wear these false smiles even while you sweat, it definitely makes the chapter more interesting for us. But we have to wait for a better time to discuss all that, so instead we get introduced to an aspect of this growing war that becomes more and more prominent as we go, the Yunkish Warlords. Yeah. This one is quite fun to have a look at, but it's just quite a fun part of Dance Dragons, to be honest. Quentin and the others ride alongside the Windblown, who ride alongside other sellsword companies, but the Junkers are also here, stumbling and slow as they might be, which sets a pretty good precedent for their skills through the remainder of this book. Currently, the Grand Command belongs to Yurkaz Zoyunzak, an old, obese man who seems to be the mould for the majority of these commanders. All of them have grown complacent and gluttonous thanks to their reliance on slavery. Like Astapor, in some ways, they represent the worst of humanity in society, especially as people using all and giving none. And rereaders know that this old man will eventually perish in Daznak's pit, he'll be crushed. And the vacuum of power that he leaves will bring out some of the worst greediness and the stupidity in the Yunkish wise masters, who are already widely regarded as fools who can't achieve anything, especially in war. We'll find that opinion in this chapter, we'll see it going forward, and it's very hard to argue with. For my money, if you ever want to see a direct reflection of some of the covenant governments we have, mine especially, look no further than the bungling wise masters of Yunkai. Before his eventual death, Yurkaz will come across Tyrion the slave, as well as the man who next gets some focus here in the chapter, the Yellow Whale, an even larger man who appears to be disgusting in nearly every way possible, but is very, very rich, so people tend to put up with him. Quentin doesn't spend too much time focusing on this man, but obviously we're getting a lot of setup for future storylines in the Yellow Whale and his grotesquery, and we're really getting the establishment of a new area in the book. As we said, at the beginning of the episode, John Connington signals that, but it's true for Marine as well. The war is moving forward. 
Yunkai is about to be really, really involved with Marine and the conflict between them and with several of our own key characters as well. And they won't ever really go away, even to wins as battle nears and nears. So get used to them, they are here to stay. That's about it for ones we know from later in the stories, but Quentin still gives us details on captains like the Girl General or the Little Pigeon. These ones won't really have an impact on Dance, although the girl general, known as Malaza, does come close to buying Tyrion and Penny at the auction. In Winds, however, when the second siege is commencing and the Battle of Fire is coming nearer, that will change. In the preview chapters, we know that Malaza at least has a role to play, and there's every chance that the little pigeon will do something at some point as well him with his hilarious herons that look a lot more like flamingos to me. The description actually makes me think of Disney's Aladdin, the 92 version, when uh, Iago the parrot, he dresses up as a flamingo to spy on Aladdin in the Paris. That's the mental image I get when imagining these herons of the little pigeons. But anyway, in that Wins preview chapter, Malaza is involved in the absolutely insane idea, and I cannot emphasize enough how insane, just senseless this idea is that each of the Yunkish warlords should get a turn in being in charge for a day now that Yurkaz is dead. And I don't think I need to explain to you why this might be the stupidest idea we ever see in any of the books. It is clearly chaotic. It makes no logical sense whatsoever. We'll see the logistics of why it fails in that Winds preview chapter and it's just how could you not see that coming from a million miles away that this is just gonna fuck everything up. The chaos it grows is as clear as day as that wind chapter tells us in terms of who's giving orders and who's supposed to do what and the absolute proof that yes, these wise lords don't have a clue what they are doing. I bet they couldn't handle the pandemic properly either. Yeah, good comparisons. So if you haven't read those Winds preview chapters, I'd do it just for that, just for the description of that new uh, policy from the Yonkish warlords because it's pretty funny. Talk of stupidity does not end there, however, as we now learn of the Clanker Lords, whom, having been defeated by Daenerys's Unsullied previously, have figured the way to combat soldiers running away from Unsullied is to chain them all together from wrist to ankle. So we've got some real contenders for that worst idea ever award, haven't we? That trophy. Clearly, this is going to end absolutely horribly at some point. I personally like to think that they might be faced with a dragon at some point and will just try to run in all different directions, thereby exposing themselves to a a terrible slaughter, or Dothraki Charge would achieve the same thing. And while we can kind of smirk at that no doubt happening and how stupid the Yunkish are in general, let's spare a thought for these poor slaves, the ones who are going to end up suffering their own version of hell, again all chained together and just, ugh, no, doesn't bear thinking about. George is really going out of his way in this chapter, and many going forward, to expose how bloody stupid these people are. I know I keep saying it, but it's really obvious. I wonder why he gives that so much focus, why he pushed the needle so far on that characteristic. It could be a comment on how they literally bring nothing to the world but slaves, their evilness and arrogance and laziness has just worn away anything resembling actual use or competency because they've become so over-reliant. But I also think he's just trying to outright annoy us, and Daenerys as well. All that most of us readers want is for Daenerys to get out of this place, deal with them all, and head on to Westeros. But she can't. She has to keep dealing with them, and dealing with them, and half the time they even seem to be winning. Now, much of that is because she's already standing on quicksand in marine and the one she's got to deal with inside. But even so, they are just rubbish and Danny is so great and it just annoys us more than anything because they are clearly not on her level and this is so far beneath us. So as you can hear, if that is George's mission to annoy, he succeeded with me at the least. We get some more names of more foolish commanders. Some of them will show off their ineptitude later on in wins when they get their chance at being a boss for a day. 
some won't, some will just fade into the background. Pudding Face is one that stands out, especially in relation to the Windblown. Lord Wobblecheeks will get some attention. But the general point is not just George setting seeds that he can put out later in the huge battle to show how quickly things are disintegrating and how much of a role Chaos is going to play. It's to show how useless they are and how astoundingly moronic it is that they have basically zero command structure between themselves. Everyone was wealthy, everyone was arrogant, and everyone was a captain and commander, answerable to no one but Yorkaz Zoyunzak, disdainful of mere sellswords and prone to squabbles over precedents that were as endless as they were incomprehensible. To prove the validity of that, they immediately fall behind on this march, they can't even get that part right. So that kicks off a conversation about why they lost the Stormcrows and Second Sons to Daenerys in the first place. It's because even with their superior numbers, they look so foolish that they can nullify that advantage. Sellswords go to whatever side they think is winning, and after all the doom and gloom of Danny's recent chapters, we finally get a glimmer of hope that she might actually have a chance that more sellswords will switch sides, which they will, although some she has will switch back, and then they'll switch back again. It's all going to get very confusing later on, don't you worry. These sellswords are professionals. They aren't slave drivers merely playing at war. They know what they are about to fight in the Unsullied and maybe even Dragons too, and you know they're always weighing the odds. So it's a more seed saying for what's to come in the rest of the chapter. Such talk also returns us to the subject of Astapor, because the veterans of the company saw that as easy slaughter, as easy as it ever gets. It's not even a real battle to them, which is obviously news to someone like Quentin, who thought the whole thing was horrible, the worst you could ever imagine. And now there's a possibility of something actually worse out there? Oh, no thank you. To cement that opinion and fear, we're now taken on our second leap back into the recent past, as Quentin lays out the day they actually had to attack Astapor. You get the sense George wants to play around with this view on things, because for all the wars and battle scenes we've witnessed, we've never really been in the POV for someone experiencing their first full battle out there on the front lines. Tyrion is really the only exception, but he was not only a lot older, but also in command as well. At any rate, we've not seen it for a while, and haven't actually had a first-person view for any of the battles in Essos, so George takes his opportunity to show off exactly what that feels like to a young boy, a knight of summer. And I really like that this is done in the arena of a winning battle. This is a slaughter, this is a cakewalk in favour of the side that Quentin is on. So in terms of best first ever battles or debuts to be involved in, you couldn't ask for better circumstances. And it's still absolutely horrible. So I really like that message from George that winning battles does not make them less traumatic. Quentin started his first true day as a soldier in the same way that Daenerys started this entire book being quickly awakened to hear some very bad news. And you can go and look up the psychological and physical effects of being awoken in this manner if you fancy, because let me assure you, neither of them are good. It's Archibald slash Greenguts who was doing the waking, and he's perfectly playing his part of a knight, addressing his squire, even if he secretly doesn't like talking to his friend and his prince like this. You'll remember back in Quentin 1, when we met Archibald, we said that he's very talented in this memory, and really fights back against the trope of big dumb guy. It's true, sometimes he lets slip a detail here or there, but when he's on, he's on. And I like the extra note that in this hurried dressing of the entire unit, Jerris and Archibald are quick and efficient, and actually end up having to help Quentin with his own harness, even though their played roles suggest it should be the other way round. Out from Astapor, under the apparent command of the Cutthroat King, or maybe the Butcher King, or whoever, that we learnt about in Danny's last chapter, come the new Unsullied, quote-unquote Unsullied, such as they are. They are lining up outside the city, and the Windblown is doing the same. It's simple and straightforward as battles go in this series, but this isn't an exercise in George's tactical imagination, we get enough of that. It's exploring the spirit of a young man facing the reality of war for the first time, and I believe George captures it brilliantly. Battle, Quentin fought. Quentin had trained with spear and sword and shield since he was old enough to walk, but that meant nothing now. Warrior, make me brave, Frog had prayed, as drums beat in the distance. Boom, 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 boom. 
I know I sound like Baldrick there at the end, but that really is beautiful writing to me. I find this very emotional. If you've listened to me for any sort of time, you'll know how important Remembrance Day and the honouring of war and battle and soldiers is to me, and I think one of the most important things we can do as modern people is force ourselves to imagine what it was actually like for those youngsters waking up in misty dawns and finding a sight very similar to what Quentin sees waiting for them. The fear, the clenching as Quentin describes, the narrowing of the entire world to the enemy in front of you, this feeling of being stuck in a river with the current just too strong as the world moves along without asking if you want to come or not. Knowing what you'll have to do to survive the day is very, very emotional. I thank George for taking the time to give this to us in this way. I know it's not a very good job of me explaining what I'm getting across there, but hopefully you can kind of feel what I'm going for. As they're mounting up, Archibald notes the enemy leader, this Butcher King. He's sitting stiff in his copper scale armour, and that's a good note to remember for in a minute. And then it's beginning, as Jairus reminds Quentin that they are there to protect him when it comes down to it, and that only he can complete their mission. So there's an extra layer of heavy pressure and horribleness just before it kicks off, at this idea that you not only need to live so that you can live, but so you complete your father's mission. Or, much much worse, that your friends might be about to die to keep you safe if you can't handle yourself. Given what we've learnt already in this chapter, it's no surprise that the wise masters are already being beaten by these unsullied that aren't unsullied and need their cell swords to come and save the day. A single cavalry charge at unprotected flanks is enough to do that, along with some help from the legions from New Geese. And to be honest, quick as that, the battle has won. Especially when Cargo kills the Butcher King to find he's already dead. He's a corpse in armour tied to a horse. If there's any better image for what Astor has become, I don't know what it is. Disgusting, desperate, hopeless lunacy, chaos everywhere. And somehow it gets worse. Yeah, I know, you wouldn't think, would you? After the second death of Cleon the Great, the Unsullied, who was something like 10% actual Unsullied, proved the truth of that by breaking and running back to their ruined city. Except that Astapor, as if they haven't proved what kind of place it is, has shut the gates and left them outside to die. As Quentin calls it, the rest is butchery and slaughter. Let's just imagine for a brief second how terrifying that must have been for these poor souls that have been dragged into this fight as slaves, having these horses thunder down on you with no chance of escape. And Quentin has to take part in this. He has to keep the ruse up. And though if we were forced to choose between being the ones on a horse doing the slaughtering or being on the ground running and being slaughtered, we're all 100% choosing option A. That doesn't reduce how horrible an experience this is for Quentin. It's great that it's easy again, quote-unquote, that him and his friends are relatively safe, but he's aware of the lack of honour involved in what they're doing. He's aware of just how horrible it is, and that they are riding down what amounts to scared little boys. Here's the quote. Green boys screaming for their mothers he had fought, but he killed them all the same. And again, I want to give special focus to George taking time to highlight these emotions to us, but also for showing it from both sides of the battlefield. If you were anything like me, then this line settles deep somewhere in your gut and it doesn't let go. Frightened young men, teenagers perhaps, dragged out onto a battlefield and left screaming for their mothers. Just let that settle in. And it's the same on both sides, over and over and over. That's war in Westeros and Essos, and it's war in our own world as well. So again, I implore you to give the proper respect and take the time to imagine what people like this have had to go through. And uh, I don't know if appreciate is the right word, but just make sure you feel it. I can think of very few things that are this fundamentally important to me. Quick as that is done. Quentin is covered in the blood of boys his own age, another victim of war, because remember everybody, if there is one thing you must always remember from this podcast or this series at large, it is this, you don't need to lose a war to become its victim. For further reading on the subject, I might suggest a little book called 
a feast for crows. But that was then, and this is now, as Quentin reminds us that the danger has not passed. They are riding towards another battle, a much more dangerous one, and one they not only need to survive, but actually get onto the other side for. Hence, Quentin and good old Jerris meet at dusk and plan the next part of their journey, one that brings a whole new difficulty. Like we discussed earlier, physical uncomforts are one thing. He's not used to them, but he can make his peace with them for the larger goal. And this is the part they all just hoped to put off and didn't really think about back in Volantis. This mark against Quentin's personal honour as a man, a knight, and a prince of dawn. As he says, what must come next was plain portrayal. You are choosing to become a Theon. No, there are no emotional bonds like that situation, but your word is your word. And it means quite a lot in this society, if you're about to break it. Anyway, we shouldn't discount emotion entirely. Obviously, it's not a Rob Thiel level thing, but you are leaving men behind to go and fight for you. Maybe die in your place. It's easy, prior to signing up, to imagine leaving a faceless corporation that means nothing to you. But now you've met the men, you've slept next to them, you've ate with them, fought with them. Well, Quentin says it better than me. The windblown were not the sort of companions Quentin would have chosen. But he had crossed the sea with them, shared their meat and mead, fought beside them, traded tales with those few whose talk he understood. These are real people you are now abandoning. They're not faces at all. They are humans just the same as you. And by being in an armed force of them, you've already formed this unspeakable bond that is very, very hard to describe. If you've had teammates of any sort in your life as I have, you'll know what I'm talking about and that's obviously no comparison to actual warfare. I'm currently reading The Last Kingdom by Bernard Cornwell and obviously a large part of that is about war and being on the front line, etc. And I recently saw a quote that would fit well here. It's this. Fighting next to a man in a shield wall forms a bond as tight as love. So you can see what I mean about this indescribable bond that has already manifested and now you are actively choosing to leave them in the lurch and facing a much more dangerous battle without you. That is very difficult to allow yourself to do and apparently Archibald is going to find it the hardest out of the three of them which I think is a pretty nice compliment about him actually. But the ultimate goal remains in Daenerys and she cannot be ignored. If she truly is coming they need to act now because Quentin cannot allow himself to take up arms against her under any circumstances. That is both a death knell to his chances of completing his mission and to his own honour code. He wants to go now, Jairus wants to wait, and there are arguments for both, but the danger remains clear and constant whenever they go. If they run and are caught, their best outcome is losing a foot. And it's here on this page while they're thinking about the people they're surrounded by that we get our first mention of Pretty Maris, who is a very interesting character indeed. Now perhaps we should save a true look at her for later chapters when she becomes more of an active character rather than just someone included in a list. But I think we as a fandom find her intriguing anyway. She's dangerous. She's fairly unique in this world of sellswords. She obviously has one hell of a backstory and Quentin is always very wary of her. She always represents tension and danger. I personally think one of my favourite things about her is later on when they attempt the dragon thing, she runs because even someone as badass as her isn't that much of an idiot to try and steal a dragon. But this is also a character perhaps bolstered by fan theory as much as anyone else. In this case, it's Joe Magician's famous posting on Reddit about Pretty Maris being the version of Brienne that we would have got if the five-year gap had gone through. Now, it's been a while since we spoke of the five-year gap, but it just fits damn perfectly. If you haven't read that, I implore you to. After the horrors of Feast and the ending there, you can absolutely see how pure, wonderful Brienne could have been hardened into this terrifying shell, this warrior who's abandoned the lies and dreams of knighthood to sell her sword instead. There's the pretty versus beauty connection, and it just all fits. So if you're unaware, you should definitely read that. And again, I'll post the link. So two Joe Magician links for you in one episode, lucky you. But like I say, more on Pretty Maris as we go later in the book here. For now, Quentin agrees to wait until after Yunkai, as Jerry suggests. But it turns out fate is playing a large role in this game also, as, just two days later, the three of them are summoned by the tattered prince himself. Clearly that raises their hackles and their confusion as well when they attend their commander to find that the other Westerosi have also been summoned. Hmm. 
At first, it seems they're merely being selected for the annoying job of riding out into the Yunkish hill and driving refugees from Astawar back to their damned city because the wise masters don't want them coming to Yunkai and making the place messy, or, by happenstance, bringing the bloody flux with them. That might make sense for these three, given that they're rookies and this would be a rather annoying quest if you were in a video game, but there's also some tension in that they might come up against the company of the cat who don't go on the windblown. So again, makes sense to send the rookies, doesn't it? And it's also here we get our first Bloodbeard mention, another person who will be of importance later on, and will actually show up a bit more in dance than the other people we've mentioned in this chapter. He's an interesting study in being another type that war breeds. Or is it that they breed wars? Either way, he's pretty focused on bloodshed and further violence. He's pretty much the exact opposite of the type of person you want in this situation. And we'll see later when he pops back up how far he goes to mess up any attempts to save lives and just make the world better. Back to right now. Well, it's not just rookies who are here, Quentin notes. People much higher than them are also being given the same mission. The only thing that ties them together is the Seven Kingdoms. And it's Dick Straw who is the one to pose this as a question, and the Tattered Prince answers with the truth of this fake mission. Go around Junkai, then head for Marine, and then turn your cloaks over to Daenerys Targaryen. Quentin Martell almost laughed aloud. The gods are mad. We know adventure stinks. It's full of bad luck and woe and defeat, but every now and then the pendulum's got to swing the other way, and it just so happens that this time it does at the best possible moment imaginable. Quentin would never have been able to dream of this opportunity falling to his lap. The thing that felt so bad is now being commanded. He's not betraying, he's following orders, to a point. Staying true to both Daenerys and the Tattered Prince, both. Again, up to a point. Even better, they won't be chased as deserters, and they'll basically be riding with an armed escort, so you can't really ask for better circumstances. And also, if we're talking about the names that get dropped, I really like this Lewis Lanster guy, the golden-haired company archer. Is he a Lannister, do you reckon? The name certainly fits, the hair certainly fits. We've never really heard of any Lannisters being good at archery, but you never know. I uh, don't know if he's going to become important later on, but very interesting. Anyway, as a sidestep. The Tad Prince gives his rationale for putting this group together. Pretty Maris is here because perhaps she can bond with Daenerys woman to woman. And maybe she can. We don't know Maris at this point, but on the surface, she seems pretty damn different to Daenerys. The other reasoning is that everyone is Westerosi and has more in common with Daenerys than anyone else in the company. Of course, this ignores the fact that Daenerys has never actually been to Westeros, but you can see the logic and Quentin's willing to look past it if it serves his mission. The prince also adds on that they can give stories of abuse for motivation just to get their foot in the door. And we get a reminder of exactly what type of person we're dealing with here when Cargo Corpse Killer tells us that he killed a slave girl he raped because she was ugly. So let's just never forget, shall we? For the Dornish Free, it's the most basic of grievances in saying they didn't get paid as much as they wanted. Besides, the Second Sons and Stormcrows already went over to her once it suited, so hopefully she'll be open to it happening again. So the matter is settled, that's what they're going to do. But danger still persists. The company of the cats and the long lances are out there, like we said. If they discover that these lot are intending to turn their cloaks, it will mean their deaths, same as if there were only three of them. And while yes, I mentioned that there was an aspect of safety in going with others who know the way and can fight with you, eventually there is still an extra level of betrayal to be done. And now instead of slipping away from thousands, these three have to slip away from 20. It's 20 who speak their own tongue and will be focusing on them a lot more. So danger is still the name of the day. Leave it to the big man to end on a higher note. So, this is Sweet Frog, a dragon hunt. This happened in the luckiest, most unimaginable way, but Quentin and his friends are on their way to the Queen again. It's a short chapter, but again, it's one I'm really appreciative of in terms of that look at the reality of war on both sides. And it's also just super, super important for setting up all the moving pieces in this next act of the war. We get, what, 20-odd names for the first time here, all with roles large and small to play in the future of Marine and everyone involved. This really opens that window much wider than Joncon did, so it's a really enjoyable, useful chapter overall. 
As with John Con, we actually have to save a Quentin while we can. If you thought 20 chapters was a lot between his first and second, we now have to wait a staggering 35 chapters until his third. Marine and the surrounding area will be a very, very different place by then. For example, Daenerys will probably be gone. She'll be off on Drogon. The war will have ended and then restarted again. So it's very difficult to imagine at this point in the book. Of course, the caveat is that unlike John Con, Quentin and friends will be borrowing from other people's chapters instead. First Daenerys and then Barristan. He actually has a few appearances and major parts of his arc happen in other people's views. So that's a bit of a change for us in the last two books at least because that kind of thing used to happen all the time in King's Landing but not so much recently. So it's not a complete departure but it'll be a long, long time until we're back with Quentin's mind again and ironically, when we see him again, he'll be back with the Tad Prince once more making decisions on what to do in a post-Daenerys world and I think you know to what I refer. So there you go, that's our second, that's our middle chapter, that is Quentin 2. That means we still have one remaining and it happens to be our longest one of the day, so we should probably get to it. It's also one we've been waiting for for a long, long time and I'm glad to finally be there. Let's get on with our last of the day, The Wayward Bride slash Asher 1. And I'll say right from the top, this is a superb chapter. I won't wait to tell you, that's just the truth. It's one of the best. I love Asha. I'm very, very glad that she's back in our lives. And I'm not sure how I didn't pick up on this in the intro. I probably should have. It would have fit a bit better there. But Asha is also our first POV, our first returning POV from Feast. So she's not only opening those floodgates in terms of structuring that we mentioned earlier on, but it's also the first time these two novels are actually merging and we have a real connection between the two stories. So get ready for a lot of me saying, as we discussed in Feast, during this chapter, which is only Ash's second of the entire series. Criminal, I know George, what are you thinking? So I'm not going to spend too long introing because it's already a long podcast and we've got a lot to get through, and most of it is just best to discover anyway. This is the outlier in the arc, as in the other two she's a prisoner, now we actually get to see her free for once, so let's appreciate it while we can. We get beautiful scenery, we get the soul of the Ironborn versus the North and how that still feels. We get a real appreciation, I think, just for the feeling of the North through a stranger's eyes, through an outsider's eyes, really kind of... Um, give that a personality and see that waging war against Asher. And speaking of waging war, we have a truly brutal battle to offset Quentin's easier one that we've just discussed. We'll have a major, major moment in the Northern War that really flings us forward in plot progression at the end of this chapter. But like I say, most of all, we have Asher, finally. Just one chapter of her was not nearly enough in Feast, awesome as that chapter might have been, also one of my favourites. We've wanted more for ages, now we've got it and we love it. And it's a long chapter, like we discussed earlier, but to be honest with you, it doesn't feel long to me when I read through it, when I did the notes for it. Hopefully, it won't seem too long to you as I speak for it now. It's beautiful, it's brilliant, it's a different Asher, it's a low-down Asher, Asher who needs some sparks, some life. We're going to see how she finds that, and then kind of how she loses it as well. Then again, Asher at her lowest, still better than most characters anyway. Let's get to it anyway. The Wayward Bride begins with Asher feeling pretty damn wayward. Here's the quote for you. Asher Greyjoy was seated in Galbert Glover's long hall, drinking Galbert Glover's wine, when Galbert Glover's maester brought the letter to her. She's a fish, or kraken rather, out of water. This doesn't feel quite right anymore, it doesn't feel like home. It feels like she should be doing something else. There's a couple of different angles to that. One is that this isn't Asher in retreat. She was defeated back at the Kingsmoot, as we'll remember from Feast, and had to run back here because there was no other option. This isn't what she chose, this isn't option number one. It wasn't her goal to just rule Deepwood Mott, even if it did figure into that cool northern plan that Victorian should definitely listen to a bit more. Much as she might respect the place, it's not her dream. 
that Ironborn, or Euron, or both really, excluded her. She's essentially been exiled. And while she's off nursing wounded pride over the loss of her people, those same people are in the middle of the biggest uproar to their culture in centuries. And she's not part of it at all. She's just been left out here on the fringe with no real goal or planned future and it all contributes to this feeling of loneliness. The other angle is purely the fact that she's in the north and the time of the Ironborn in such a place is coming to an end. The writing's on the wall. We already saw the remnants of that war emote Kaelin and it wasn't pretty at all. Asher would never allow anything like that to happen to her men, of course, but still, the tide is quite clear. Balon's war utterly failed, despite her own successes, not her fault. The last remnants have been hanging on as pointlessly as they did at the very beginning when they first died are being swept away. Theon was defeated at Winterfell an age ago, now news has come of Moat Kaelin falling and her uncle's last force going with it, basically. She is alone, in a foreign land that never wanted her, with enemies on the way, and there's no allies on land or overseas, so wayward she is indeed. But let's give some focus to this message that she receives from the maester that is not hers, because it is no normal letter. Instead, it is the precursor to a much more famous letter that has dominated the collective fandom's mind for years and is still a hot topic whenever anyone brings it up. This version might not be so everlasting in the lore, but it still means a bunch to Asher. I write this letter in the blood of Ironman, was the first, and then the last. I send you each a piece of prince, linger in my lands, and share his fate. Talk about tone setting to start the chapter. Losing the North was always pretty inevitable. Ash is not stupid, she knew what would happen. The Ironborn being flayed and her own brother being tortured without relief for months on end. The prince of her people, a boy she once really cared about. Damn, that's harsh. Our sympathy is sky high for Asher right now. Again, she's alone, and now she's in danger too. And finding out the devastation that she was already holding on to that Fionn was dead is actually much, much worse than reality. On top of that, there are all these other northern signatures from the houses that have joined the Boltons. So this north that they attacked and kind of broke early on while working together again, and they're all working against her. That's some nice foreshadowing for her future chapters when she's in amongst Stannis' camp and is viewed and treated as the enemy. A kraken, essentially alone, in a world of Northmen we have it now we'll have it then too so it's a somber mood for asher to start on and she doesn't bother replying to this letter why give the satisfaction and what could she really say anyway instead she gives permission for lady sybil glover to be informed so we have at least a little uptick in remembering why asher is so much better than many others in her treatment of lady sybil and her children as we discussed in feast she captured them and intended to make best use of them that's true but she was kind even caring in a way she even reminds herself that her efforts saved Lady Sybil's children. It's always important, but even more so concerning what's become, supposedly, of the senior Glovers. We know better, but they don't. So we have a little bit of setup there for the final Davos chapter that we have coming next week, I think. And it's a good time for George to shore up the general story on the Glovers, what we're supposed to all be thinking. We're also told that the children are still down at Ten Towers. I'm not sure if that'll have any significance later in the plot, but it's interesting that we have this mirror of children being stashed away on islands, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. So considering that Robert Glover and Wyoming Mandalay become partners, and the Mandalays want to go and save one kid from one island, maybe we'll see a rescue attempt on the other side as well. Anyway, Asha continues her being kind to Lady Sybil. The woman is completely bereft, of course, and spends her days in the Godswood the same way that Sansa used to do in King's Landing. Asher doesn't hate the woman, who may well hate her back, and isn't cruel enough to deny her a potential chance at joy at this news of Northmen coming back from the war. Does that make it better or worse for Lady Sybil, because her husbands assumedly aren't with them? Well, Asher thinks it's not for her to decide and allows the letter to go to Lady Sybil. We've already established that Carl the Maid is at Asher's side, the man she is so very fond of, but now we find that Tristopher Botley has also come over from the islands to join her. He's the one she's not so fond of, or at least not in the same way, as you might remember from copious discussions back in Feast. He's the one she left bleeding in the moonlight when he wouldn't quite take the hint. 
Again, she bears no ill will towards him, say. She's just her own person, and he's a bit doe-eyed over here, despite her being pretty clear about who she is and how she does not conform to what he wanted. She said it then, back in fee, she says it now. Still, he is devoted and an old friend, so she's definitely not turning down his company right now. What she will do is disagree slightly with his notion that after Moat Kaelin will come Torren Square, and then it is Deepwood Mott's turn to feel northern vengeance. She doesn't argue that endpoint only when it will arrive. She still has faith in the cleft jaw. Yeah, remember that guy? He did seem to have it together a fair bit, so maybe it's well-placed faith. But she's convinced he'll at least forestall the Boltons for a while. And we can agree on that point, but her assertion that if Balon still lived, Moat Kaelin would also still stand is a bit more questionable to me. I have zero faith, personally, that Balin would have got anything done. You'd like to think he might have had the sense to withdraw, but I bloody doubt it. So what is Asher asserting here? They would have just kept sending more troops to bolster Moat Kaelin? Told Victorian to keep holding it? Well, that might be true, I can believe that. And at least they'd be better off than when Theon found them, but for my money, the Cranagmen still would have reduced them to what they were, and a combined assault by both Roos and Ramsay would have still opened the door, even if they'd lost a few more men doing so. But this isn't even really about her father, it's about her uncle. No, not that one, not Victorian, the other one. The one who stole her chance to rule and has led the majority of her people on some wild dragon chase down south while completely abandoning those who are supposedly still fighting a war for you. She's bitter about that. She's bitter about how he came into the Kingsmoot at the last minute and let his shiny baubles distract from her actual plan to improve the Iron for like the first time ever. And she's bitter that her people have been duped and are actually following him down south. We'll see this resentment through the chapter, but for now... Her assembled men that ran from the Isles with her discussed their options, mostly settling on marching to join the Clefjort in battle at Torrent Square. They are only wolves. The wolves are all slain. Asher picked at the pink wax with a thumbnail. These are the Skinners who slew them. So I'm just including that quote as evidence that Asher gets it. She knows the score. Unfortunately, she also gets what the men around her are actually saying beneath their words. They have given up. They've already lost in their mind, and they're just seeking some glorious end. That's kind of northern in its sentiment, but it's also a replica of Theon's own argument and his men's own argument back in his Battle of Winterfell days. Worst, she's not even sure they are wrong. The Northmen are coming, and they cannot win. In fact, the only reason to maybe not allow her men to do this is simple logistics. March to the cleft jaw, and you might never reach him. Instead, you could be picked off from behind, one by one, from the shadows, by men who know this land better than you ever will. She loves her men, as she says here. She could have never allow such an end for them despite the end of the chapter, so her 200, with their four ships, will have to find another way. What she could do with in this period of bad news is a bit of distraction, and Carl and Maid arrives on the scene to deliver it, and uh, and then some. As sex scenes go in A Song of Ice and Fire, this one is a bit more uh, forward, shall we say? Yeah, we'll stick with that. Which is obviously intentional by George, given that Asher is so confident in her sexuality, and allows it to be part of the personality that it is, but what's important for our purposes is that she does get some slight separation from all these many bothers of her mind. For a little while, she can just be herself, doing what she loves with someone she loves. Of course, unfortunately, it only lasts so long. After all the fun times that she has with Carl, she's back to remembering what's become of her family. The fact she technically has a husband that she never chose and would loathe, and that she feels so impotent about it all. So why not reminisce on better times instead? When winter is on the horizon for everyone, I'm not sure why there isn't more thinking back on the days of summer, but Asher leads the way here as she so often does, as she spoons Carl while he sleeps, thinking of how he's grown in front of her, how back when it had started everything was still very much the status quo in the world. Not perfect by any measure, but it had that intact feeling, you know what I mean? Ever since Robert died, everything has felt broken. We've seen that across the board, and it's never been remade since. Let's just imagine a Westeros where you can sail from the Iron Islands to Lannisport and then maybe pop into Old Town down south just because you fancy some peaches. Do that now and you'd face death a dozen times and see enough devastation for a lifetime. 
but we're not thinking of now. We're remembering happy times where that did happen, which makes them as worthy as any. So Asha lives for a few moments in the birth of this relationship that she enjoys more than the others and gets to show off just how miles and miles ahead of the rest of the world this pair are in terms of healthy relationship roles. A woman spooning a man? A woman desiring a man with hardly any beard hair? A woman being the initiator sexually? It's unheard of in many ways, unfortunately. It's basically scandalous on the islands, but Asha is comfortable in herself and with him and in who they are together. It's this wonderful moment of vulnerability that George decides to share with us. And it's not an out-and-out requirement, we could have easily had this chapter without it and not noticed, but instead, George gives us another side to this woman that we've seen being hard or cunning or just damn cool and pretty brave as well at the Kingsmoot. Instead, we get this different side. We've seen her be emotional and kind as well, but not quite like this. So it genuinely feels like George is sneaking in this little gift into such a dark book in general. It's not often we get to see a POV of any sort enjoy a moment like this, is it? And some of it is, of course, a goodbye. It's the last chance for such a meeting before Asha's arc changes forever, not that she knows that, before she has control of her life stolen away, and Carl does as well. She believes death is coming via the Boltons, so we'd best live in the time remaining, and she's definitely doing that. There's also this note about how he would have always been too lowborn for her to marry, and were Asha a different character, we could have accused her of being rebellious against her father, but that would be an insult to her, Carl, and their relationship. She isn't doing this to get back at daddy, She's doing it because that's what she wants. He's who she wants. And thinking on that, Asha decides to coax him into round two so they can live life together just once more. And even if George is a bit more direct in his language, thanks to this POV, I'd say this is one of the more romantic moments in the entire series for me. Top five, at least, to be honest. And that's all wonderful. But when Carl makes a chance comment of her being his sweet queen, she's reflecting on that loss again and she's back to being wayward. We can see it in her restlessness or the fact she constantly refers to it as Galbert Glover's bedchamber, never her bedchamber, not even the bedchamber. That's how this chapter opened with Galbert Glover's maester, Galbert Glover's castle, etc, etc. And she even sees it in the very land that surrounds her as she opens the shutters. The moon was almost full, the night so clear that she could see the mountains, their peaks crowned with snow, cold and bleak and inhospitable, but beautiful in the moonlight. Their summits glimmered pale and jagged as a row of sharpened teeth. The foothills and the smaller peaks were lost in shadow. And I've got to say, this sounds like an absolutely beautiful landscape that surrounds Deepwood Mott, but perhaps that's just the Skyrim player in me. And Asha can appreciate that beauty, she can see it, but it's not hers. Her soul doesn't live in trees. She's a sea girl. And that sea that she loves so much seems on the edge of her very reach, close enough to know it's there, but not close enough to really be able to feel it, and that stings. It just feels wrong, in the same way the Starks end up missing snow and proper winds, etc. The air's wrong, the ground is wrong, she feels wrong. While looking north, Asha happens to think on Stannis Baratheon, and briefly wonders if some alliance can be worked out there, but she's smart enough to know that that is never going to happen. Not after her crimes against the North, not after Stannis already having a personal history of the Ironborn, and not with Stannis just being Stannis. So, rather ironically, she thinks he would only be another enemy that could come even if the Boltons weren't. Maybe she should have thought that a bit more. But those other enemies are coming, she believes, which leads Asher to give us a detailed tour of Deepwood's layout and defences, which is the kind of thing we always find very, very interesting, and some of this knowledge will turn out to be useful in a moment. It's a strong castle, she says, after she's done proving it to us, and you can tell there's a little hint of inner pride at the fact that she had taken such a strong castle for herself. She might lose it again, now, sure, but that doesn't invalidate winning it in the first place. She also thinks that, when it comes to it, she will have her death be the same as her life, of her own choosing. She continues the mental inventory taking by thinking on how she only has four ships from her original 30, and again, shows off how balanced she is, how emotionally intelligent, when she refuses to condemn those who walked away from her, knowing that they were technically just obeying orders, just obeying their king, while she decided to run. 
So we get a little bit of information from Feast and a mini flashback to fill in the gaps that weren't supplied back then. It's hard to recall now, it being so long ago, but we had no idea what happened to Asha at the time. Did Euron get his hands on her? Was she chained up somewhere? It was incredibly worrying given the multiple looks we get at Euron straight off, imagining what he might have done if he had caught her. She might have even been shipped to a terrible husband, but luckily not. And that's because of this intervention that Roderick the Reader had back in the day, as he steps in as soon as the Ironborn began chanting Euron's name. The memory is ringed with shame for Asher, and you can imagine the kind of protest that she would have brought up originally. She knows it was the correct choice now, but that still doesn't erase the shame she feels as a warrior. Now Roderick, in this flashback, being cool and smart as he is, told her to get out now while she still can. There's no time for doing more recruitment drives or rallying your people again. Half your men would have gone anyway, and this whole thing is legit, you have no complaint. Here, I have a book on the subject. Yes, classic Roderick. We love him, don't we? But for now, the point is, you got to get out of here quickly. If you stay, you'll be killed or used, or maybe even worse knowing Euron. Asher is still dangerous to him thanks to her claim. She always will be. There's never going to be any safety thanks to Euron. And it's actually the sound of the horn that convinces both her and the reader. As in Roderick, I mean. There was something eerie, otherworldly, and above all, powerful about it. So that's a nice little connection because she's dead on that that horn is indeed powerful. And it also gives us some nice setup for what's coming in later Victorian chapters. Still, before she departs, there is this focus on the uncle-niece relationship between these two that we were able to focus on during Feast. Her refusing to go unless he does. Him commanding he not be made to watch her die because that is the very worst thing that could happen to him. It's all very endearing. And again, like I say, we spoke about it a lot in Feast, but it's just as strong here. It's probably too hopeful for us to wish that these two will meet again, especially with Roderick being close vicinity to Euron still, but he is hoping anyway. So Asha abandons her home. Asha runs. It's so very strange for her, but she's not so frightened that she won't stop at Ten Towers first to say goodbye to her sweet mother. If Asha doesn't show kindness to Alanis, who will? Unfortunately, the poor woman seems to have deteriorated even further, asking only after Theon and what has become of him. Lady Gwyneth is much the same, still muttering about Ten Towers being hers, not Roderick's, completely detached from what's actually going on in the world. That's a very cruel snippet from George there, reminding us of the poor fate these two women have been dealt by the men of Asher's own family. This is the work of Balon and his wars, this is the work of the Ironborn culture, and this is very much the work of Westerosi society in general, this shoving of women to the back of the cupboard once their child-making usefulness has ended. I'm not going to repeat that too much, because if you remember, we had a big, big discussion on it at the time during Feast, and you can always go back and listen to that. But I think it's likely that George includes it, firstly, because Asher is awesome, and is the only one who remembers to bother with these women apparently, but also because she's likely catching a glimpse of what she could become if she stays. So this is confirmation that running is the correct option for her. And that feeling is validated when she is still at Ten Towers and news comes that she has already been married in absentia thanks to the orders of the new king. Eric Ironmaker slash the Anvil Breaker is her new husband. And you might remember Eric from the King's Moot. And if so, I don't think I need to tell you that this is one of the last people in the world Asher would want to marry for a whole variety of reasons. Apparently the man is old enough to have sailed with Dagon Greyjoy. That makes him seem way, way more ancient than I originally thought in my head. Euron decided to further shame Asher by having a seal stand in for her at the wedding, because apparently that's something you can do. And even though she can make a cool retort about it now, it's obviously another blemish for her really. To have this part of her life stolen away from her and controlled by another. She's never going to honour it, of course, but still... It's pretty damn insulting. She's also smart enough to realise that Euron, while being this freaky horror wizard, is also politically brilliant. In fact, he probably doesn't get enough shine on that part of his character in general amongst the fandom, although I can happily say we focused on it a lot during Victorian's chapter, when Euron has made similar moves to what Asher describes here. The Anvil Breaker, his former Kingsmoot rival, is now beholden to him. The Iron Irons are secure while he goes sailing off to chase dragons so that he can't be Rob Starked. 
although that isn't really expanded on and I'm not so sure that's actually true. And not only that, he's doubled up on this degrading of Asher. She's been removed as a claimant thanks to her marriage, no one can support her in the hopes of marrying her now and becoming prince or king or whatever, and he's reduced how the Ironborn see her with this seal business. Not many men are going to rush to announcing that they support the seal queen, unfair though it is. So very, very similar to those moves that Euron made with Victarion's own captains down on the shields. Let's go back to the present, back to Deepwood Mott, where Asher is reflecting on how all of that means that the Iron Islands are definitely closed to her. That's something she's going to remind herself about again and again in this chapter. Even with Euron gone, returning wouldn't just mean death for her, but her crew as well, and probably anyone she visited too, and she's just not going to risk that. But that doesn't mean she doesn't miss it. Asher had spent her life on islands and on ships. The sea was never silent. The sound of the waves washing against the rocky shore was in her blood. But there were no waves at Deepwood Mott, only the trees, the endless trees. Again, we have this wonderful language and powerful imagery from George, where he doesn't just get across what Asher sees, but what she feels. The sea is in her very soul, and she misses it so much. With so many of us being in lockdown, I imagine we can all relate about our own passions that we're missing. I know, I certainly feel that way. And feeling passion in the sea means feeling an absence of it in those trees. She says they talk a language that she doesn't understand. There's few better ways of getting across how much a stranger she feels, how she's not supposed to be there, especially when we know of certain people who are supposed to be there in the north, but aren't, who can talk to trees a bit or something close to it. Really, this is what Theon and Tyrion have both described about feeling when they visited the Winterfell Godswood. It's just on a different scale. This place belongs to someone else, not Asher. Now we reach the point where re-readers can start to see hints of where this chapter is going. A bit like with John Connington early on, George sows the hints where they merge perfectly with what we expect Asher to be witnessing anyway. For instance, that the whispering of trees just seems a little bit louder than usual. Asher is too wrapped up in her own thoughts to focus on that, and maybe the reader is too, but then start combining it with other teeny notes on this page, such as the dogs beginning to bark, or the watchtower being a man short. It all adds up, and it shows that George really does provide an experience for his rereaders. It would take a very eager-eyed first-timer to notice these hints initially, but now the rereader can experience that same rising of tension, the same build-up as they revisit the chapter and know the amazing battle that's coming to us. But we aren't there quite yet. Asher is sick of looking at this wonderful landscape, and again, Skyrim vibes, major Skyrim vibes, and heads off to the kitchen to find some food. Unfortunately, she also finds Christopher Botley. Uh, well, unfortunately, is a bit too harsh. I'm not going to spend too much time reminding you of Christopher Botley, because I pretty much covered it earlier, but again, we spoke about him plenty in Feast, and you'll recall the guy does have some delusion problems, maybe some maturity issues, and definitely some cloth lodged in his ear when it comes to actually listening to Asher. But he's also a pretty good guy in general, I think most of us agree. Definitely better than most. He does adore her, he did champion her at the King's Moot, and he's given up all of that now to come and support her here, even though he had at least a claim to Lord Sport after Euron drowned Sawain Botley. But then again, half his lands have already been given to House Winch, and Tristopher's uncle has actually been awarded Lordship. Still, he could have made an attempt, couldn't he? Instead, he's turned his back on all that for her. In many ways, he's Carl's opposite in that he's highborn and doesn't exactly provide the same excitement and just doesn't get Asher to a certain degree. But again, there is that genuine affection and dedication. Asher likely wishes she could sometimes merge the two, and I do like to wonder if they'll ever come to blows over it in any way or anything like that. I hope not. I think they kind of keep it civil here. Unfortunately, this is George R. Martin we're talking about, so it's plenty like that Carl, Asher's true love, ends up slain, with Tristopher left as a shoulder to cry on. Although again, I hope not. Though Asher by no means needs to end up with anyone for her arc to feel complete, so maybe she won't end up with either, but I'm confident that their deaths, either one of them, would both wound her deeply. Anyway, 
Triss is coming in with his over-the-top compliments, and Asher is again despairing over what to do with him, how to actually wake him up and see that it's not going to happen. You should look elsewhere. At least this time, he remembers his senses and doesn't grab her, because we know what happened last time he tried that. While Asher is suggesting other women for Triss to moon over, he wants to talk about the situation at hand, the one already plaguing her. They need to leave, or they will die. Would you have me run? she asked. I would have you live. I love you. No, she thought. You love some innocent maiden who lives only in your head. A frightened child in need of your protection. I do not love you, she said bluntly, and I do not run. So we get a repeat of what we had from their interaction of Feast, Asher knowing full well that Triss is in love with the idea of her, not her herself. It's that kind of old chestnut, so we get some more Asher wisdom as we always do. But here we actually see some rare Asher folly as well, so we get both sides of the spectrum in one quote. She will not run, she says, when told it's thou death. Do we not remember a time long ago, about 300 leagues from this very spot, when someone said the exact same thing to her? Yes, there was a day when Asher stood in Winterfell and put all of her Asher wisdom on display when she told her little brother Theon he needed to run or die. His response was that he would die, and we pretty much all agreed that that was a proud, vain, foolish decision that made no sense. Winterfell could not be held, and there was no use having it anyway when they were so far from the sea. But he was too proud of his taking of Winterfell in the quest for daddy's love, and he couldn't bear to let it go. Asher herself fought these exact same sentiments she fought more moron. But now the situation has slipped. Now she's the one who took a castle by herself. Now she's the one who'd be worried about reputation and pride if she were to retreat. What her own men might say about her, how she would look to the world. Now she is the one not listening to words she knows are true about the pointlessness of holding on to such a place. Now she's being stubborn for stubbornness sake. So it's not so easy, is it, Asher? Not when you're in that situation yourself. It's very hard to let go of a sight of victory, something you believe to be yours. So that's good food for thought, I believe. Luckily, Asher is not Theon and does listen to Christopher's argument. She dreams of being a pirate out on the sea. He says merchant, which isn't quite so appealing, but it's still better than this place where she feels so unnatural and unwelcome. But then she decides to tease Triss by mentioning that Carl would have to come too. But the whole thing is folly anyway, because she can't just go off gallivanting. She's still a Greyjoy. She believes she needs to be involved in the islands. She believes she needs to be doing something. The question's what? As Trista reminds her, the islands are not an option. She explained that to us herself just a minute ago, and actually picturing having to be with Eric Ironmaker puts her off even more. Still, she tries to bargain a bit, there are hostages on Harlow that she will not forget, and she should get points for that because many her place would. And there's Sea Dragon Point. Remember how I won Sea Dragon Point and all its mud and stones and stuff? You can't blame Asher for clinging on. All that she's done and won, and this is how it ends? She's trying to find some victory to make this all worth it, or heck, just something to aim for, instead of all this sitting around and doing nothing with no target or purpose. I think we all agree Sea Dragon Point is not the place to base such hopes, but we can understand why she cooks up this little dream of her own mini-kingdom on the point, even if logistics and reality are kind of sparse for a few paragraphs. Somewhere in her mind, she knows that's not going to happen. She's kind of just dancing around it like it's a stage of acceptance. Christopher successfully manages to argue her off that point so that she refocuses somewhere else. But unfortunately, she lands right back on Pike as she nurses dreams of sparking a mini-rebellion. At least this idea is a bit more founded in logic. She's dead on that Euron didn't make everyone happy. The Black Tides might come to her. Harlow again always supports her. Maybe even the Damp Hair would be interested in the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of idea. All very solid logically, but unfortunately incorrect, especially on the subject of Aaron, who is apparently missing. That's something else we heard in Feast, and re-readers, or just readers of the Forsaken chapter preview, will know it is false. He's much worse than missing, he's with Euron being put through a terrible hell of his own. So no rebellion will be forthcoming. Even without knowing all that, Asher does know it is a pipe dream. She admits her answers are feeble and none of this is going to come true. That isn't her reality and everything is just bloody rubbish. No answers anywhere, 
doom in every direction, and damn Christopher Botley is pointing it all out. Things were so much easier an hour ago when she was busy living life with Carla Maid. But then the conversation takes a turn. As Christopher is reminding her about how she was part of the Kingsmoot and cannot legally challenge it, he slips something in that sticks out to Asher, even as she's not entirely sure why at the point. You were both part of the Kingsmoot, so you cannot say it was unlawfully called, as Torgan did. You were bound to its decision by all the laws of gods and men. You, Asher frowned. Wait, Torgan? Which Torgan? Torgan the latecomer. On Asher's request, Triss fills in the story of Torgan Greyiron, the king's son who was off raiding when his father died and a Kingsmoot was called. Urugon Goodbrother snuck in there and got himself crowned quick as you like, and then Torgan came back, citing that the Kingsmoot wasn't official seeing as he wasn't there, led an uprising against Urugon, and got himself the throne back before ruling for 40 years. Asher took Triss Botley by the ears and kissed him full upon the lips. Tristopher must have felt pretty blessed beyond recognition here. It's like all his dreams suddenly came true at once. And Asher likely feels exactly the same, just on a different subject. This is divine intervention when she needs it most. A chance, a spark, a mic drop moment if we ever have one. It's unlikely that I need to relate to you what Asher is thinking here. I actually thought we got a little more groundwork for this in Feast, but apparently not, I did check. Hence why Asher hasn't thought of it before. Torgan was a king's son who wasn't at the king's moot and someone unworthy took his spot. Theon is also a king's son who wasn't at the king's moot and someone unworthy took his spot. So if we need further comparisons, well, let's just look at the names. Torgon isn't a million miles from Theon, is it? And Euron is even closer to Euron. But now we see that George's timing matters as he ties us back to the chapter beginning, as he so often does. Being reminded of this historical anecdote would have just been another punch in the gut if I should have heard it a few days ago when she believed Theon was dead. But he's not dead. Flayed and tortured, yes, in who knows what state, but alive. Which means there's a chance, however minuscule, there's a chance to restore Theon, dethrone Euron and restore her family's name. There is a chance, and she's so desperate for such, she's even happy enough to kiss Tristopher. This is what she's been waiting for, a purpose, an aim. Again, I say, just a chance, that's all she wants. But what a shame that George is writing this book instead of someone else. This moment of hope and a new plan just so happens to come at the exact wrong time, as the war horn sounds and the entire chapter leaps from emotional analysis to exciting battle. But before we get to all the action, let's just hold back. I know it's difficult, but let's just hold back and take a look at this Fionn the Latecomer theory. I'm sure it's been discussed in many, many places, and some of you might be quite familiar, but what do we think here on the aisle? Before we get to the likelihood, is this even an appropriate ending for Fionn and Asher, should it work? I'm thinking probably not. I just don't see Fionn ever getting that capability back or being comfortable in that role. And beyond that, does he even have the skills to rule? I say no. He's never displayed anything close to that. In fact, he was a disaster. And we might feel more empathy for him now, and he might have grown up a little bit. He's definitely not the arrogant ass he was before, but that doesn't automatically guarantee leadership skills. On top of that, I don't really buy the Ironborn ever being able to fully accept him again. They didn't before, and the only reason they might now is if Euron leads them all to disaster, and they tire of his cruelties, which is perfectly likely, and they just see Fionn as a lesser evil. Okay, that's fine. If they are looking for a legal out, and Fionn suddenly appears from nowhere, maybe they'll embrace him, but in general, not so much. Especially after getting himself captured and tortured for years, and being a captive of hated Stannis as well. That might not be fair, but it is very keeping with the Ironborn and their valuing of what they call strength. It's also not a great idea politically. Theon is still universally despised across the realm for what he did to Rob. Even if it's publicly revealed that Bran and Rickon are alive somehow, he's still got a huge list of crimes, and to many, he's just going to always remain the turncloak. That's not who you really want representing your kingdom and dealing with other politicians, is it? Now, if he's used purely as a tool to legally get the Isles out from Euron, and then the abstains for Asher or names her his heir or something... I could get on board with that, but I think it's all moot anyway. I don't think we'll ever see it happen. Both as a matter of circumstance and just for thematic fit. Both of them are up in the north, as per the end of this book, stuck in the midst of winter with a huge battle looming, and oh yeah, they're both captive. 
To put this plan into reality, they have to both not be executed or sacrificed by Stannis, not die in the battle, be on the winning side of the battle, and then persuade Stannis to give up his highly valuable prisoners so that they can go and take control of a rebel state in the Seven Kingdoms he's trying to conquer. And also, don't die from winter in general, or if the others come too soon. So that's all a bit of a stretch for me, you have too many dominoes that need to fall. I suppose if Stannis is victorious overall and Neuron is being a pain for him, Stannis might seek a way to destabilise his rival by sending back the two Greyjoys, but that seems unlikely to me as well. We'll look at it as Stannis winning the battle and getting shunned by the North in favour of Rickon or even Jon. Let's just imagine for a moment. Do we think either of those two are giving Freon and his sister what they want? It just seems too unlikely for me that we'll even get so far for this to be an issue. It serves its purpose here to wake up Arasha a bit, and maybe it'll do the same in the future if she ever believes there's a chance, or maybe she can even eventually go home and just declare that they have to do the whole thing again because Fiona was alive at the time and therefore invalidated it regardless of what actually happened to him by then, but again, it's unlikely. Remember, at the end of this book, and from what we get in Fion 1 of the Winds preview chapters, this seems to have disappeared from Asha's mind once she actually meets her brother again. Whether that's because she's seen what he's become and knows he'll never be accepted or just thinks they're never going to get the chance, we can pretty much decide that for ourselves. In that preview chapter, she's actually arguing for Stannis to execute Fionn in front of the Heart Tree, which is a pretty big crimp in the plans of making him feel on the late camera, isn't it? We're skipping ahead in the Asha arc here, but that's likely due to her experiences of the march to Winterfell and seeing people being burnt alive, which is what Fionn is facing at that point. And therefore, she's trying to save Fionn from that death at least, given that all he's been through. So it definitely seems the plan has gone from her mind for now. Although, if you want to throw a spanner in the works from the Winds preview chapters, in the Forsaken chapter, Aeron makes a point of saying that Asher and Victarion will never rule the Iron Islands, but he doesn't say Fionn. And that's probably because he thinks Fionn is dead, but this is George, and it's the kind of signal he likes. But to that I'd say, maybe the idea of Fionn ruling will exist again, I just doubt we'll ever actually see it. And the biggest reason for that is Fionn himself. I don't think he would actually want this, and if he did, it feels like it'd be going against a lot of the point of his arc in terms of what he's learned. I think we mostly agree that Fionn will want to pay for his crimes in some way, he already does by the end of this book. Whether that is via Stannis' blade in front of a heart tree, or just staying in the north, or helping to restore Rickon, or defending Winterfell from the others, or what, don't know. Going home to the Iron Islands doesn't seem to address any of that. I don't think it hits on him learning about how he should have focused on the Starks and their acceptance over the Ironborn in the first place, or how much of a mistake that all was. Maybe it's supposed to be a go forth with all we've learnt type thing and make the world a better place, but that just doesn't sit right with me. I think Fionn is tied to the North, Bran, and ultimately Winterfell and House Stark. Now maybe something important happens with this heart tree, and Fionn's life somehow winds up binded to Bran, and Bran is the one who goes all wise and knows Yorin needs to be stopped thanks to Bloodraven or something and sends him off. That I can get on board with, but I feel like I've taken us down a bit of a massive rabbit hole with this huge, cool battle just waiting politely for me to finish. So let's get back to the chapter and the Battle of Deepwood Mott, superb as it is, shall we? So Asher has just rocked Triss's world with a kiss, but unfortunately he doesn't get to ask the how or why, because Asher has just heard the warhorn and knows that there is danger out there. She doesn't know who it is, but she doesn't really care. The first half of the chapter has been all tedium and staleness, but now the clear path has appeared to her, the one that always makes sense, fighting. Unfortunately, she's missed the opening act as she reaches the castle Bailey to find dead Northmen and living Ironborn. It turns out Triss wasn't missed on the wall at all, they were just fine. The Northmen were spied, and the Northmen gone died. Except one. He's still clinging to life, worse luck for him. So Asher takes the opportunity to learn all she can, and she's not above being savage to do it, not when it comes to the life of her men. Before the guy even talks, we see he's wearing not just a camouflage cloak, 
but one complete with attached branches and leaves etc stuck all over his body and head. I've got to say this is pretty damn clever and it's one of my favourite parts of this battle. Firstly it's just pretty funny to have stiff old Stannis give permission for his men to go scurrying forward in makeshift costumes like it's some school project. It makes me think of Deku shrubs shuffling forward in Legend of Zelda. But it's also going to be super effective. Twice in the chapter already we've had the description from Asher of this sea of trees. That's clever enough, but combined with their costumes, you can see how these guys made it to the war with ease, even if they were spoiled after. The dying man identifies himself as a flint. Asha knows that means he's part of the mountain clans, even though she doesn't know the circumstances that would make them attack. She even thinks that they were never supposed to be a problem because they couldn't unite without a Stark. Well, she's halfway there. They had to be united using a Stark's advice, but we all know it means Stannis is coming. And it actually seems to be a pretty short time narratively since he left Castle Black. I always remembered it as much longer, but here we are. The man is coming. He's been successful with the clans, obviously, so we have true northerners coming our way too, which is very exciting because we like them. It's like the wall all over again, isn't it? Stannis bursting onto the scene, so our excitement is up, two different arcs are about to smash into each other, and we've got a battle on our hands. Thanks to Asha's savage torture, she learns the numbers and correctly guesses that this was an advance party sent to open the gate before the full force arrives. In some ways, there's ironically a lot of elements of Theon taking Winterfell in this battle again. So now battle is afoot, and Asha is in her natural mode so she doesn't hesitate. For the first time, she refers to Deepwood Mott as her castle when killing the flint, and now she's ready to act like it. The folk of Deepwood Mott are soon gathered up, again, like Theon once gathered those from Winterfell, and they all have a general sense of what's about to go down. It's the unnamed Maester and Lady Glover who appeal to Asher to surrender. They are both genuinely aware that Asher could have been so much worse, and they're willing to admit that to get the children back. Lady Sybil would exchange anything, say anything, but I think she is genuine in recognising Asher's sense of honour. We sympathise with Lady Sybil and her missing children, but Asher's brains show through again. She's well aware that she could become a prize, as she eventually does, along with some of her relation and her men that have important names. But the grand majority would die or be sent to the wall. Interesting as it might be to see how John would handle a bunch of Iron Men showing up, Asher displays amazing leadership even now, with the enemy bearing down on them by insisting that her men have the right to choose their fate, so you can see why they love her so much. She lays the choice out plain, surrender and beg, or fight and hope. And these are the Ironborn, so I doubt this is ever a question in their mind. Carl the Maid is first answered by drawing a sword, and now they're all doing it until the Watchman's horns sound again. It's a good job they were quick selecting a choice, because the fight has come. Asher sprints up the nearest watchtower, stretching up above the trees as if we're that lonely guy on Yavin 4. There, Crom, who apparently is one head of a lookout, points out that the forest itself has come alive and is moving towards them. Thousands of people in these tree costumes all shuffling forward. And I'm surprised to hear that Asher was told tales of the children in the forest in her youth. It doesn't seem like that sort of thing would have spread to the Iron Islands, but that's quite beside the point right now. This land that was so unwelcoming to her at the beginning of the chapter, that rejected her, seems to have banded together to show her just how unwelcome she is and to cast her out. It looks like the actual North is coming for her. Such dramatic resonance will have to wait though. We need a plan. There are thousands coming, much more than she has, so picking the battlefield is even more critical than usual. The forest itself is a bit of a no-no. So should she fight here at Deepwood Mott? Hmm. But then the castle didn't defend well against her, so why should it save her now? Crom and Hagen have what is an emotional little conversation about how their souls will still find their way to the sea when they fall, thanks to the little streams that come here, because it is a matter of when, not if to them, as Asha highlighted earlier, and it's definitely confirmed now. They've seen the numbers, they know what's going on. Perhaps it's that conversation that convinces Asha of her decision. Asha was not ready to die, not here, not yet. A living man can find the sea more easily than a dead one. Let the wolves keep their gloomy woods. We are making for the ships. Yes, it's bracing stuff. Let's do it, everybody. There is danger still. She knows it. Triss knows it. If they reach the coast to find Northmen already there with their ships burnt, they'll be trapped and killed. But Asher is convinced they won't have done that. Although even if they have, it's still a better death than here in this world that she hates. Remember that passion with which she spoke of the sea earlier. 
salt spray and the smell of it, the sound of waves. That's the world that Asher wants to die in. Triss, almost like the Quentin of our earlier chapter, looks like a deer in headlights. But Asher has her captain hat on now and keeps strong and confident. She even promises him a kiss for every kill. And there can be no greater motivation for this guy, I think. So Hagen gives the signal to the ships and just in time too because the Northmen are already at the North Gate with a battering ram. Yes, we know Stannis loves a battering ram. And even in this frenzied atmosphere, she's smart enough to realise that Northerners don't use trumpets. But she can't figure out what that means, of course, but it's another hint to us readers. Besides, there's stuff to do, like getting the hell out of here. And she's going to look and sound awesome as she does it. The hour of the owl has fled, my brothers. Now comes the hour of the spear, the sword, the axe. Form up, we're going home. From a hundred throats came roars of home and Asher. You do have to love the relationship between Asher and her crew. We've always thought so throughout the series. It's just such a rarity to see it, isn't it? And it's obviously highlighted when compared to Fionn's own attempts to lead these people. So it hurts just a little bit more than usual when, as the Ironborn mount up, and note the extra tension we have as Carla Maid is being singled out as a poor rider, Hagen is the first casualty as an arrow brings him down. It hurts Asher just a little bit more than most leaders, like I say, but there's no time for that. Arrows are coming over, the gate is about to give, we got to go. So go, they do. Thrilling as the chapter is, let's not represent this as a, as a charge of the Rahirim or something like that. It's not a matter of thousands of horses going full power out of the gates. This is a tactical retreat. There has to be a pace and they need to stick together given half their number is on foot. It's a trot, not a gallop. Before you can blink though, they are into the woods. And Ash's damned trees are surrounding them like this final test before the relief of the sea. The trees were huge and dark, somehow threatening. Their limbs wove through one another and creaked with every breath of the wind, and their higher branches scratched at the face of the moon. The sooner we are shut of here, the better I will like it, Asher thought. The trees hate us all, deep in their wooden hearts. Again, it feels like the land itself is fighting against her. It has already won the castle itself back, and Asher hopes that might be it, even if we know that's likely too keen a hope. The north ends up making it strike against them when horses begin stumbling in the dark, slowing them to a crawl and threatening to expose them. The leaves trap them in darkness, the roots trip them, but bloody north. So Asha has more decisions to make. Push forward and maybe lose a few people, light torches and expose themselves, or wait for sunrise and hope for the best. Given how close we are to dawn and wanting to save as many as possible, she chooses the latter, and George stretches the tension out that little bit longer because we all sense a true fight is coming at some point. Hagen's daughter, likely awash in grief and terror for her own life, seems to want to live life while she can, as Asher did with Carl earlier. She tries to enlist Triss, but is rejected, so she goes off with Six-Toed Harl instead. That seems like an odd note in the middle of a potential battle, but I think it's superb for showing how bloody frightening this must be, camped in the middle of a dark forest, knowing the enemy could be upon you any moment, wondering if you'll ever see the dawn, so why not? Go for it and try for one more happy memory. Asher has those exact wonders about Carl and her beloved Black Wind, but again, she wonders about purpose and direction, until now, with the first brief respite since she first thought of it, she confirms the plan she fought with Tristan Botley. She could turn merchant her, as Trist seemed to want, or else make for the Stepstones and join the pirates there. Or, I send you each a piece of prints, she muttered. That thought seems to be cursed somewhat. Every time it appears, the Northmen turn up, and it's no different here, as the head of Rolf the Dwarf, whom Asher had sent to scout, is thrown into their camp. That's the spark, and next comes the explosion, as Asher realises her mistake. The enemy didn't like torches either, but they never needed to. They could still move through these woods that are theirs, and much faster than them as well. This is their land, not hers. It's the same as Northmen trying to fight Ironborn on the sea. Unfortunately, battered is here. Then the trees erupted all around them, and Northmen pulled in howling. Wolves, she thought. They howl like bloody wolves. The war cry of the North. Her Ironborn screamed back at them, and the fight began. 
Yeah, George knows how to get the blood flowing, doesn't he? This is one of my favourites. He continues that theme, though, by almost detaching us for a paragraph of chilling overview about how this is no movie script. There's no glory or beauty in this fact. There's nothing cinematic, and certainly not so easy as riding for a broken enemy like Quentin did. No, this is a down-in-the-trenches, down-in-the-mud type stuff. It's just a pure fight scrabble for life, with neither side being prepared to give up. It's fought in near darkness, where you're as likely to trip as you are to fight a duel. It's muddy, it's brutal, it's horrible. What a description we get. Ever since we've met Asher, we've known that she's cool, suave, smooth, and a damn hand with axes. She's even shown us a few examples, but now we finally get to see how truly dangerous she really is. And no joke, she's one of the best fighters in the series. You can't convince me otherwise. She dispatches three men immediately. One with a throwing axe, one with a dirk to the stomach, the third with a dirk to the throat. She goes for a fourth, but Carl the maid beats her to it, coming to her aid when he fought her in trouble. Carl stood over him, with his long sword dripping and moonlight shining in his eye. Damn, again, the descriptions in this battle. Superb. There is ironborn success elsewhere as Grimtongue shouts out his kills in a tribute to Gimli, while Tristan Botley shows his true worth as he gallops around dealing death. Can you see what the kid is capable of if he thinks he'll get a kiss out of it? He might be king of the Iron Throne if he fought game Asher. Asher does kill a fourth, and then she begins to lose count herself, as the shadows keep coming and Asher just can't resist laughing at the madness of it all. The battle goes on, slow and terrible. Again, not cinematic in the slightest. It's drawn out and painful. It's brave men crying for their mothers again. Yeah, we get that punch in the belly twice today. Thank you, George. Exhausted, she and Carl are nearly impaled on a spear together. And Asher is so tired she thinks that might actually be a good end. Until Cousin Quentin saves her. And then Cousin Quentin dies for his trouble. Hagen's daughter returns to the scene, both naked and running. We don't need to point out what that probably means. Although it might also mean that Six-Toed Harl is likely dead. Two Northmen are pursuing the girl. And Asher continues to be amazing by summoning the strength to take one of them out of an axe. When he fell, Hagen's daughter stumbled to her knees, snatched up his sword, stabbed the second man, then rose again, smeared with blood and mud, her long red hair unbound, and plunged into the fight. That's as good a scene for depicting the grittiness and passion of it all as any, but it drags on and on, all tired brutality and blood. Asher is exhausted, likely malnourished and definitely dehydrated, but still going forward even though her mind is slowing. She's lost her tryst and her car. Her beloved Dirk is gone. So are her even more beloved throwing axes. Somehow she's ended up with a sword, although the confusion is such she doesn't remember how. Dawn is coming, so this has clearly been going on for hours, and she's nearly dead on her feet. But she is not done. A final Northman comes out of the tree, shouting obscenities because he doesn't want to fight a woman. Asher's spirit remains defiant, but her body does begin to betray her. Exhaustion begins to win as she backs away, doing all she can to avoid the Northman's axe. In the end, it's the land that she hates and that hates her back that causes Asher's fall. She trips in the roots of a tree, bloody trees, suffering the ankle injury that will plague her for the rest of the book. She's hit in the head and goes down hard, and thinks this is the end, this is her death, but at least she fought until the end. A trumpet blew. That's wrong, she thought. There are no trumpets in the drowned god's watery halls. Blow the waves, the merlings hail their lord by blowing into seashells. She dreamt of red hearts burning, and a black stag in a golden wood, with flames streaming from his antlers. To Asher, it means nothing. To us, it's the same as what we saw at the end of the Wildlings at the Wall. Stannis Baratheon is here. His northern campaign has truly begun. He's clearly won the mountain clans, he's just taken Deepwood Mott, and it seems he has defeated the Ironborn from the north as he wanted. Jon Snow's advice worked, of course, and now war is truly beginning. It's that next phase feel all over again, just like we said at the beginning of the episode. But what of Asha, this amazing woman that we're so lucky to be back with? 
Well, that's not great news. She was defeated in the end, though not due to a lack of veracity or effort. Can we say that stopping for camp was a mistake in hindsight? Well, perhaps. But I'm sure they would have been caught by the Northerners anyway, and probably even less ready to defend themselves than if they had a chance to set up camp. Their only true hope was the coast, and still the Northerners might have caught them, so I think Asher was screwed either way. At least she fought the way she wanted to, though. But her cause is ultimately done. A lot of her men are dead, the ones that survive will be taken away from her, including her two key men. And she'll now spend the rest of the book as a prisoner, which is bad enough for someone like Asher, who really cherishes and uses her freedom. But she's also going to be a prisoner in a horrible, deadly storm, where failure and death await you every day, just like these damn trees. And there's people that also want to burn you. So this was our last glimpse of that free Asher in this chapter. But what a glimpse it was. She lived life to the fullest. She made love. She led her men. She found inspiration again. And she fought. Amazingly. What a day it was for her. As for where Ash's arc will end up, well, we have two remaining chapters and they're pretty evenly spaced out with about 20 between each. They are going to be really important, not just for seeing how Ash is doing, but she'll also take on major responsibility, like a really, really important role in this book, for showing us what's going on with Stannis and the Battle of Winterfell. And you have to guess she's going to continue playing that role when the actual battle comes and wins because who else is there? Only Fionn. So it seems like we're going to split that major event between these two siblings unless John suddenly turns up or more likely Bran witnesses it through the heart tree. I could see that. And a quick note on the two guys, we shouldn't forget them, Carl and Triss, they have survived, although we don't know that right now. And even more importantly, they will eventually be reunited with Asher. So that's pretty awesome after what she goes through in the march. And I'm very, very interested to see how that all works out as well. This kind of little, well, I don't know if it is even a love triangle. Let's just call it a triangle. Like I say, I'm very invested in that. Aside from all that though, I find it quite difficult to guess Asher's endgame, but I look forward to finding out again. As for this chapter, it's one of two halves, the tedium and stagnation at the beginning, followed by the frenzied action at the end. And I want to highlight again just how good that battle is. No, it doesn't have to be kind of fancy tactics or some unexpected twist in the middle, it doesn't have to look good or be cinematic or anything. It's just the pure passion of it. It's just a fight for life, literally. You're just grasping in the dark. No one looks good doing it, but they're all doing the same thing. I think it's a fantastic representation of actual battle from George here. But also, the surroundings of the chapter mirror the actual events. We have that Skyrim image at the start of cold, like crystallized woods and trees, beautiful in the night sky. At the end, that turns to mud and wet leaves, blood and trees and chaos. And through it all is Asher, this character I again absolutely adore, searching for a way out, finding one before finding something even more concrete and straightforward, fighting for your people. Which again, she does amazingly. How lucky we are to have her back. Welcome, Asher. I can't wait to see you again. And to be honest, I had a lot more to say about Asher in this chapter here, but I'm gonna leave it out because this is a long, long podcast already. You've listened to me enough, I think. I can tell you now that this, uh, the notes for this episode broke the record, I'm pretty sure. At least for this book, maybe some of the ending chapters of the other books might have beat it, but it was like 31,000 words. Let me look it up for you here really quick. Yeah, 31,000 words. So well done you for listening to me for 31,000 words, <laughs> plus the intro and what I'm going to say to you now, which is, again, well done. And again, thank you for being with us for these three chapters. Yeah, only three chapters and we got more words than normal. How about that? I hope you liked this first step into the second part of A Dance of Dragons. I'm sure I didn't mention that nearly enough, this new phase, this widening of the scope. Yeah, I should talk about it more, shouldn't I? No, I hope you enjoyed it. It is new, it is very exciting. And we're going to continue it next week, even if we get back to something we're a bit more used to. Although, again, only three chapters because we've got that massive Tyrion one. That's what we're going to start with. Next week is Tyrion 7, which I believe is must be the longest chapter in the book. That's Volantis again. That's Tyrion and Jorah. There's a lot of stuff to cover in there. Then we'll be back to John 
in John 6. I know it seems like ages since we've seen John. It's just he's only had one week off, but still. That's when we'll start getting visions from Melisandre. Yes, very, very important. And we'll end somehow with Davos 4, our last Davos, one of the most popular chapters in the book, in the series. We're getting a hell of a speech in that. You know we'll have plenty to say. So again, I hope this podcast helps you out if you're feeling a bit low or a bit rough in lockdown or wherever you are. Always feel welcome to get in touch again and again. Thank you for the downloads and the sharings. It all means so very, very much to me. You can find out more on our Patreon page if you wish. But for now, I'm going to let you go. You've been so very good for listening to me for so long. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. 